Welcome to School of Everything Else. Mass Effect 3. This show was originally available as two episodes of Digital Gonzo, but I have combined them for you here to make one massive episode on this extremely divisive game. To refocus, though, I trimmed out about an hour of material that you can easily find on YouTube, all about indoctrination theory and why people hated the ending. That's not stuff I want to air on my show anymore. So instead, we start with some more positive articles and then move on to the roundtables. This next piece is from Film Crit Hulk. Now, ideally, I would have wanted Hulk to read this out for himself, but in his place, it falls to me to do so. This gets rather impassioned, and it's important to note that he did write a lengthy apology for those who were emotionally injured during his smashing. Film Crit Hulk Smash. A few words on the ending of Mass Effect 3. When Mass Effect 3 come out, Hulk was suddenly inundated with the most column requests that Hulk has ever received, so much so that it completely dwarfs every other subject that Hulk has been asked to discuss by uh, about a hundred times, maybe more. The way the column was requested went something like this. Hey Hulk, you're a big story proponent and understand the mechanics of them and stuff, so please smash the Mass Effect 3 ending because it was so bad! Hulk should mention that it's not as if this was the sole voice in the sentiment. A number of people liked the ending too, but it is safe to say this attitude was the majority. Hulk honestly had no disposition one way or another, but was vastly curious what could prompt such reactions. But the whole thing went on the back burner because Hulk's been busy as hell and didn't have 30 hours lying around. But Hulk finally had a little time to play this week, so here's your column. You were all wrong. In fact, you were all so wrong that it makes Hulk horrifically sad. The original ending of Mass Effect 3 is beautiful, stunning, and poetic. After a lifetime of war and fury, Shepard comes face to face with the Catalyst, represented by the form of a child, much like the one Shepard has been dreaming of the whole game. And you have a long, in-depth conversation about the nature of cycles. This is rather apt, as all three games have been about the nature of cycles from the very beginning. Whether they take the forms of violence, revenge, love, creation, or death, it was always about cycles and the ways we break them, continue them, or harmonize them. And thus, in this climatic moment, it is rather appropriate that you are given three distinct philosophical options on how to deal with this erroborotical cycle. And despite small differences, all three lead to very similar endings. Which is the exact point? All three paths lead to the same symbolic understanding of the purpose of death and rebirth. It is the only core truth of fatalism. For one path, there is violence, which leads to the mass extinction of synthetics, robots, devastation and collateral losses in the name of victory. Then there is the path of sacrifice, which ends in harmony and mass cooperation with continued threat of unrest hanging over it. And for the last path, Hulk Ever the symbiotic advocate first chose the synthesis ending, where both factions unite in a mixed synthetic organic rebirth, and wouldn't you know it, but the colour was green. The imagery of Edie and Joker standing there in the new Eden is utterly perfect. Hulk didn't need any more closure because the symbolic imagery of everything made sense. 
and while the Normandy landing on this Eden certainly makes the most logical sense in the synthesis ending, the Eden imagery works brilliantly for the other two as well, one with the notion of violence setting us back to technological zero and starting us over in the new cycle's uncorrupted Eden, and then again with the cooperation path where the new Eden represents a land of perfect harmony. But it is important to note that all three are using the same imagery to make a very, very specific statement about how human nature cycle solutions bring us to the same place, all go to the new myth focal point, and the only difference is our intentions, and those intentions mean everything, because they reflect our very humanity and purpose. To be honest, Hulk thought it was one of the best video game endings that Hulk has ever seen, it went for a brief, beautiful articulation of everything it ever needed to say about its central driving theme. Hulk mentioned before the core truth of fatalism. What this basically means is that the main constant of the fatalistic discussion is that death is the single most obvious constant. It's like the old adage goes, nothing in life is certain but death and taxes. The reason it is a constant is because dying is the one thing all of us will do in this life. You will die. Hulk will die. Everyone we love will die. It's terrifying because we don't have a concept of what happens next. But because the magnitude of this question looms so large, many people end up burying their head in the sand and not wanting it addressed in endings whatsoever. And that's exactly why it's addressed in art so often. Art and stories are supposed to engage these scary ideas and conflicts we face in life, so we may better understand how to do them ourselves. So any time a big epic story gets into the question of endings, most often they want to thematically engage the greatest of all possible endings, which is obviously death. So why should the Mass Effect series be any different from most forms of art and traditional hero cycles? Shepard meets his end in three different symbolic ways. A warlike action that kills others and results in his own demise, an accepting action that leads to sacrifice and then peace, and a synthetic blending as kind of a peace and transformative stasis. All three deaths are achingly similar with each going out into the new Eden. But the point is that the statement made each form of the three deaths tell you everything about the kind of shepherd you wanted to be. The action itself is the statement, not the results. Thus the consequences are in and of yourself. There were some who found the entire notion sad or emotionally unfulfilling, and Hulk understands that. You bought the entire galaxy to save the world, only to have it result in the same kind of death every time. But what may seem tragic is something that Hulk thinks is a beautiful statement. We all end up in the ground when it's our time. So it's the things we do which define us, not necessarily our legacy or affectation. It's what we do with our moments in our cycle. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. And so Hulk thinks that it was amazing that Shepard got to unite the world to a common purpose. It doesn't need a positive result to justify it. The purpose itself is all we ever need. Death and rebirths are the one true constant, but it's how we live that says everything. 
But even if it didn't do it for you in that same emotional way as it did for Hulk, there is no denying that the ending is a single economic thought and pure expression of the creators. And you hated it. Here are most of your reasons, and yes, you sound like this guy. Alright, so if you're like me, you have invested so much time in the Mass Effect trilogy, and now you've beaten Mass Effect 3, and you hate the ending. So I'm here to tell you what I think about the Mass Effect 3 endings, why I think the endings suck, and what they might have been able to do to make them better. Alright, so first of all, my big issue with the Mass Effect 3 endings is choice, or lack thereof. The Mass Effect trilogy builds up the fact that what you do affects what happens in the game. The Mass Effect 3 ending goes against that entirely. So in the end of Mass Effect 3, Talk to some star child who says, Alright, you have one of three options. Okay, Hulk is going to do something that Hulk rarely does. Fuck this guy. Fuck him in his big, stupid face. This guy's pretty much everything wrong with our critical perspective in society. Plus, he's wrong in just about everything he says. No resolution with the characters? The entire game takes 30 hours of catharsis in saying goodbye to characters. There are even four distinct, this is it, huh, moments where we say goodbye to them and process what their entire relationships have meant before the final battle. So, yeah, Hulk has no idea what the fuck he is talking about. You don't actually need an epilogue to show what everyone is doing from that point on to have resolution. That is nonsense, and the fact that he would be more satisfied by the Michael Bay-esque isn't destruction great ending where they're sitting on the beach with carcasses everywhere is very telling of the fact that he probably had no idea what kind of game he was really playing. But there is one thing that's very telling when it comes to this guy's rant. His most popular words are, Give us. We are truly in a give us culture. We want indulgence. We want nothing to do with stories. Nothing to do with anything. You can argue that video games are growing in popularity because they give us the things we want in terms of experience, instead of having some kind of relationship with something we can't control. Is that it? We control video games? We make them give us what we want? Well, because of that perspective, then in the end, the furor over the original endings prompted Mass Effect 3 to release extended endings where they simply tack on more imagery explaining in more detail exactly what they already explained. The fans basically insisted we needed an After Eden, which is so thematically wrong in so many ways. And to Hulk, this falls in line with the infamous unnecessary added explanations that have forced their ways into great works of art. The added Doctor explanation in Hitchcock's Psycho, or the way the producers forced Spielberg to take us inside the spaceship in the re-release of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In meta terms, this whole situation is disturbingly like Annie Wilkes' forced rewriting of Sheldon's story in Misery. I'm sorry, Paul, this is all wrong. What? You'll have to do it over again. It's not worthy of you. Throw it all out, except for that part of naming the gravedigger after me. You can leave that in. I really value your criticism, but maybe we're being a little hasty here. Paul... What you've written just isn't fair. Not fair. That's right. When I was growing up in Bakersfield, my favorite thing in all the world was to go to the movies on Saturday afternoons for the chapter plays. Cliffhangers. I know that, Mr. Man. They also call them serials. I'm not stupid, you know. Anyway, my favorite was Rocket Man. And once it was a no-breaks chapter. 
And the bad guy stuck him in a car on a mountain road, knocked him out and welded the door shut and tore out the brakes and started him to his death. And he woke up and tried to steer and tried to get out, but the car went off a cliff before he could escape. And it crashed and burned, and I was so upset and excited. And the next week, you better believe I was first in line. And they always start with the end of the last week. And there was Rocket Man trying to get out. And here comes the cliff. And just before the car went off the cliff, he jumped free. And all the kids cheered. But I didn't cheer. I stood right up and started shouting, This isn't what happened last week! Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us. This isn't fair. He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car. They always cheated like that in um, chapter plays. Perhaps it is human nature to crave more than we are given, but it is also our responsibility to say no to this kind of indulgence when we can especially when this indulgence threatens the purpose of art and the creator's right to make the statement they see fit. It is so very important for a self-aware, critical society to also say no when it is necessary, and this time we didn't. Which brings up the added fourth ending that was put into the game as well for people who didn't like any of these original three choices. There's a little two-minute blip where you can decide that those three endings are stupid and shoot the catalyst child, and this results in your automatically losing the game and the Reapers harvest you, and the only thing that remains is Liara's message on using their story to help build the Crucible next time, saying something along the lines of If you are hearing this, then there is still hope. Hope that you can avoid the same mistakes we made. We fought the Reapers, but we failed to stop them. We did everything we could. We built the Crucible, but it didn't work. We fought as a united galaxy, but it wasn't enough. I only hope the information in this capsule is enough to help you before it's too late. My name is Dr. Liara Tassoni. Herein lies the recounting of our war with the Reapers. This ending is perfect because it is aimed directly at your rejection of the original endings. It shows that rejection of that central cycles-based idea is essentially a non-committal towards life itself. Their statement about cycles is something that is so intrinsic to our purpose that to reject it in the name of something else is to simply lose. Thus, it's the ending you actually deserve. Why are you so angry, Hulk? Because Hulk takes this stuff so very seriously. You requested a column in the first place because Hulk cares about and loves stories. And what you didn't realize is that with your rage with the ending, you actually want the death of storytelling. Seriously, you asked Hulk to rail against something that offers gorgeous storytelling. So really your problem is that it was bad at video game indulgence. So Hulk just has to surmise that you don't actually want stories after all. Perhaps you want to be like the person in the video above, screaming about what you are owed, like some selfish malcontent. You want to be indulged. You want options. You want gluttony. We have a word for that kind of video entertainment, and it's called pornography. And it's p 
perfect at satisfying your emotional and physical impulses, so have at it. Meanwhile, the purpose of art exists on the other side of the spectrum. Art isn't about giving you what you want, but instilling in you the opposite. It's about making a statement that will help you be better at life, giving you truths you may actually need, opening avenues beyond your own solipsistic choice. True art never indulges. So where on the spectrum do you really want to fall? If you believe in art, then you have to start acting like it. Look, Hulk knows the tone of this entire column is harsh. Hulk had spent a good deal of it yelling at you and saying, WHAT YOU WANT! and telling you that your complaints aren't valid, and that pretty much sucks. Hulk apologizes for that. Honestly, because chances are, you are not like this guy in the video whatsoever. You likely exist in some grayscale of all of this, and are just trying to come to some kind of catharsis on why you were disappointed, and in that you rallied around a number of ideas, all of which are fairly logical. But, ultimately, any path that you go down is largely going against the artistic statement being made by the game's creators. So Hulk's passion and anger about this one has a very specific point. You have to decide what is it that you want out of video games. If you want Mass Effect to be an important part of the canon of art, then you have to understand that ultimately the storytelling element is going to have to go against the indulgent nature of video games. You have to embrace the non-indulgent purpose of art. And you have to be okay with it. You have to strive to understand what is presented when what is presented is this thematically coherent and beautiful. You have to strive for it. It's the only way the medium can move forward. Say what you will, but the movie industry doesn't make no country for old men and reshoot the ending because it doesn't indulge us. Instead, it is deeply moved by what it has to say and gives that film best picture. So what does Mass Effect ultimately have to say? Hulk keeps hearing that Mass Effect is about choice. It isn't about choice. Whatsoever. Choice was simply the nature of the mechanics. In the end, Mass Effect earned an opportunity to be about whatever the fuck it wanted to be about and make the statement it wanted to make, and it quite clearly chose to make its ending statement about cycles. Which is apt, considering it is the very first idea presented in the first game, and in the end it made a single, artfully drawn statement about the nature of cycles and how they relate to our lives in a unifying way. And if you thought it was something wrong, stupid, or incomplete, then without realizing it, you spat in the very face of the artistic purpose. You decided you didn't want video games to be stories, or even art. Which makes Hulk all the more sad, because the Mass Effect folks included a beautiful bookend about the artistic purpose, and why we tell stories at all. And they encapsulated the entire journey with this beautiful stargazer scene complete with buzz fucking aldrin doing the voice which you can take a listen to now did that all really happen yes but some of the details have been lost in time it all happened so very long ago when can i go to the stars one day, my sweet. What will be there? Anything you can imagine. Our galaxy has billions of stars. Each of those stars could have many worlds. Every world could be home 
to a different form of life. And every life is a special story of its own. Tell me another story about the shepherd. It's getting late, but okay. One more story. We tell these stories as part of a cycle, a cycle that perpetuates generation after generation. We need them because we always want to look up into the heavens and dream not just of where we are going, but to do so we need to understand where we have been before. Hulk truly believes that stories are the most important things in the universe because they construct our sense of purpose. At the end of last year, Hulk surmised when we would get our Citizen Kane of gaming. And Hulk didn't know if we'd ever get there. Well, fine. Hulk thinks that with the Mass Effect series we found it. The unifying three-pronged original ending of Mass Effect 3 is a pure artistic statement. And the gamer community at large proved they weren't ready. We were all given a beautiful, articulate, poetic ending to a great story. And for many of you, the choice was to spit in its fucking face. So when we get to that point in the cycle where a beautiful video game series gives us another poignant ending, can we please do better next time? With love and hope, Hulk. This next piece is Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home, and it's actually a segment lifted from an upcoming interview she conducted for the One More Go podcast with host Matt Dillon. Okay, so tell me about your your favourite moment in in gaming over your over your gaming <sighs> career, as it were, over your gaming life. Good lord, that is an expansive question. <laughs> um. Now I, I I say I ask this fully aware that this changes year on year. You know, if something comes along and supersedes it, there's been so every so every many. so often. What what still makes your heart burst with joy when you think about that first time experiencing that thing? I think, and with the caveat that this is probably foremost in my mind because I finished it very recently. Mm-hmm. But I think, how spoilery can I be? We can we can we can stick spoiler tags <laughs> on. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, major spoilers for Mass Effect Three. Um, I, have you? I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that you've played all three. Uh, if, if anybody's ever listened to this show, there, there are regular listeners to the show listening now that are pissing themselves laughing. Oh, Aaron Christ, and I have... of course, no. I've just remembered the Mark Mir interview. Okay, scratch that question. <laughs> I was, Aaron and I have had to make a special pact not to mention it for a while. <laughs> it's good, but it's not as good as Mass Effect. You promised! Shut up! <laughs> I know what you mean, though. It's like that now has to be the caveat. You you can't compare anything else to it because it's it's like the best thing in the whole entire world, and then everything else, everything else has a chart all of its own. Um, okay, so uh, I I had played the first game not 
hugely long after it came out, but it, it wasn't immediately after it came out. And I've, I've never been one to go, oh, this is a brand new game. I must play it now. That happens very, very rarely. I think the, the Tomb Raider, the new Tomb Raider that came out, um, this year was the first thing that I've really played very shortly after it was released. Um, and then, uh, and I, I loved it. I fell in love with the world. I fell in love with the people and the, like I said before, characterization is so essential for me. That interaction with the, the, uh, the individuals that have been created to communicate this story and, and build this universe. And that, if it's done brilliantly well, will grab me and engage me and drag me in and not let me go until it's all done. And when I got to go back into it for Mass Effect 2, it was even better because the graphics were even better. I had some gameplay issues, but we won't talk about them here. Um, but it was, you know, back on the whole building relationships out of conversations. And to be able to do that in a, a form that... 20 years ago, people would never have even been able to get their heads around. 10 years ago, if you told anybody you'd be able to have that kind of interaction with individuals on a, on a games console, they'd have looked at you like you were nuts. And, but for that to be there and moving forward and, and building and something that you could look at it and go, wow, that is amazing. But even better is the fact that I know it's only going to improve. Um, so then, um, Three was something that kind of just kept getting put off and put off and put off and I started it and um, it's, I, I ended up playing it in a very bitty way because uh, my lifestyle at the moment is not hugely conducive to being able to sit down and get absorbed in a, a long game. I have a, a young daughter, I work full time, um, there, there are all sorts of demands on my time and my, my energy that I just don't have the capacity to be able to do that. And I, and I knew that going in. I knew I wasn't going to be able to give it the same devotion as I had the, the earlier games. And, and I thought, no, that's, that's fine. I'll, I'll do the best I can. But it was turning out to be weeks at a time between play sessions. And when I actually got them, they didn't last very long. And, um, I was so, um, on edge from, the, from Mass Effect 2 of the idea of getting past a trip point where I then wouldn't be able to go back and do side quests that I thought, right, I'm doing everything, mm -hmm. absolutely everything I can possibly do in this universe before I get past the point of no return. Um, but I did them in a really weird order because I was just trying to get all the small stuff out of the way first. And I think I actually harmed my experience by doing that um, because I didn't... I didn't give myself the chance to get that feeling of this galactic hugeness again, which was what had really grabbed me about the first two. And it, it was going okay. And then it got to the point where I was starting to do chunkier missions and, and uh, ones that involved the characters that I knew and loved and, and everything there was, was going well. And I was really enjoying how the, some of the conversations were put together, still getting a little bit pissed off with the whole having to trek backwards and forwards to get from mission to mission, but you know, it was, it was all going okay. Um, and then I finally got to the bit where, uh, I, I was kind of going into the, the home stretch and the whole end section. Um, and I only found out later that it was the, this is the original version of the ending that I played. 
And I, I was aware of how much people had complained about it. So I was like, this is going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. And, and, you know, it's going to ruin my experience of Mass Effect 3. And it got to the point where I was talking to the child on the Citadel. And I'd, I'd been so emotionally wrought by the whole end section. Every conversation that I had with somebody that reminded me that Morden was dead. Every, mm-hmm. um, uh, every flashback to something that had happened with somebody that I'd engaged with so wholly that I could look at Garrus and think, I might actually never see you again after this. It was just... Again, it's so difficult to put it into words, but it just felt so right. Everything clicked. Everything felt totally real to me, totally engaging. And I was so in the moment and so in the game. And it got to the point where I'd, I'd been given this horrendous choice between what to do next. And it was... Uh, and I couldn't decide. And I'd, I'd played the whole game through. Generally, what tends to happen when I play um, RPGs like this is I end up going more or less full Paragon. Not really out of just a, I want to be full Paragon and get all the, the gaming aspects that, that doing that will allow me. Just because that's the way my personality tends to incline. I, I find it very hard to be nasty to people. I don't even like yep. doing the shooting parts, you know, because it's, it's, I'm having to hurt people. It's not good. Um occasionally things will will happen where it's like no the the but i don't even think about it of this is the renegade option just this thing has presented itself and actually no my choice would be that one um but usually what tends to happen is i end up going the paragon way but this this final choice was so not cut and dried it was so impossible to make that decision based on how I was carrying myself and, and how I am as a person. And I didn't know what to do. And I just sat there and then he gave me the synthesis option. And my heart broke. And the only, I, I just burst into tears and I had just crying so much that I could barely see the screen. And all I could think was, that's all I wanted. That's what that was what I was looking for, the opportunity to merge these worlds. And if it has to be at the sacrifice of myself, then so be it. And I just went for it. And I was talking to somebody on Twitter about it afterwards. And they said, yeah, that, it was so hard to make that choice. And I was just, no, as soon as I had that option, that was exactly what I wanted. I didn't even need to think. And that like I said, it's still very fresh for me, and that's probably why I would say that's the moment. But I have a sneaking feeling that if you ask me in five years' time, in ten years' time, it's that's going to be hard to beat. This next article is written and read by transmedia writer J.C. Hutchins. It deals with a change in perspective for both the player's on-screen avatar and the player himself. Blood on My Hands My Failure and Redemption in Mass Effect Published February 3rd, 2013 
I completed the Mass Effect video game trilogy more than a week ago, and yet a hearty chunk of my mind stubbornly remains back there on those many worlds considering the many choices I made. The mistakes I made. Looking back now, I realize when I became smitten by the series. It was a scene in the first game. It took less than two minutes to unfold and ended with a thunderclap. Though I wouldn't realize it until much later, this moment made a profound impact on how I played the rest of the game and its two sequels. Get your head around that. Dozens of hours of play, all affected by 90 seconds. Sometimes that's all it takes. Kinda like real life. A Legacy of Pain I've already shared a bit about how I played my Commander Shepard during the series. The Greatest Hits recap? My Shepard was a surly soldier who didn't truck with bullshit. She was an orphan born on Earth, a former criminal who did absolutely everything it took to achieve her mission objectives. She didn't like aliens much, mostly because they didn't like her. She trusted no one. She was merciless. As the scope of Mass Effect's story widened, my Shepard dropped the attitude about aliens. This was mostly brought on by her collaborations with several aliens during the story, all of whom were brilliantly realized characters and righteous badasses. There was another influencing factor, however. Ashley Williams, a member of Shepard's crew, was xenophobic. Her deep mistrust hailed from family history and military experience. Ashley's reasons may have been legit, but I soon realized that that didn't matter. See, you start to wonder about your own biases when bigots evangelize their close-minded hate. Ashley's behavior soon changed Shepard's, and for the better. My favorite alien crew member was Rex, the only character in Mass Effect 1 whose surly sass could keep pace with my Shepard's. The Krogan bounty hunter loved to fight, but he wasn't a stupid brute. He was heartbroken about how his species remained on the brink of extinction due to the genophage, a biological weapon deployed 1,000 years ago by two colluding alien species. Their goal had been to control the Krogan population, and it had worked. The Krogan didn't have a say in the matter. Truthfully, the Krogan hadn't fully controlled their fate for some time. The species was technologically uplifted by other aliens 1,000 years before the genophage to be used as a willing army against the aggressive Rachni, a conquering insect-like race. This technological empowerment created big problems. After the Rachni Wars, the Krogan aggressively expanded their borders. Left unchecked, they, and the war they inevitably brought with them, might have dominated the galaxy. The Genophage solution was released, and everything changed. Rex was right to be heartbroken about the Genophage. For 1,000 years, only one in every 1,000 Krogan survived birth. Fatalistic thinking had plagued the species ever since. Its males marched off to war against opposing Krogan clans, or they worked as mercs. Most came home in body bags filled with bullets. The species was dying. Rex wanted more for his people. He hoped the Krogan might one day be cured. I did, too. I reckoned a thousand years of pain, and God knew how many billions of dead babies was penance enough. 
I didn't believe anyone had the right to make such a devastating and species-changing decision as the genophage. A Friend Lost Which brings us to the planet Vermeer, where 90 seconds of dialogue changed how I played the Mass Effect trilogy. Folks who've played Mass Effect 1 probably recall that Saren, a rogue specter brainwashed by the villainous Reapers, was up to no good at Vermeer. There, he'd built a facility that was successfully breeding a Krogan army. Saren had concocted a cure for the genophage. In order to thwart Saren's galaxy-threatening plan, it became clear that the base, and in the process the genophage cure, would be destroyed. For ninety seconds, my shepherd and Rex argued about this. Rex demanded the squad retrieve the cure. I tried to explain that Shepard was sympathetic, but it couldn't be done. Rex countered that the salvation for his people was within reach. The cure would not be destroyed. As a player, this was a very long 90 seconds. I pined for another game option to agree with Rex and hunt down the cure, but none existed. Rex became furious. He pointed a gun at my shepherd's face. I gazed at the conversation options, helpless and horrified, as I spotted several choices that were grayed out, inaccessible. I hadn't acquired enough in-game experience to intimidate or persuade Rex. All I could do was try to talk him down. And that's when crew member Ashley Williams shot Rex in the back. She then plugged him three more times as he gasped in the sand. Rex was dead. I was aghast. I'd been powerless to stop any of it. And in that moment, a miraculous moment that I intellectually understand is a complex illusion, a fabrication of polygons, textures, and dialogue written by someone like me. Make-believe, man. I hated Ashley. I experienced genuine hatred. I seethed at her disregard for Shepard's authority, at the betrayal, and at the bigotry that probably helped her pull the trigger. Not long after, when I had to order a crew member to his or her death during a final all-or-nothing assault on Saren's Vermeer base, I chose Ashley. I did this without hesitation. I chose her because of what she'd done and the pain she'd brought me. My heart had gone cold and cruel, and I didn't care. And that's when I realized I was smitten by the series. I'd made a decision based not on some elaborate metagame analysis of risks and rewards, but one based solely on emotion. More remarkably, I felt no remorse when she died. That was the end of that. But it wasn't. I didn't know it, but I was still haunted by Rex's death. I'd be haunted well into Mass Effect 3. A Family Forged In metagame woulda, shoulda, coulda conversations that so many gamers have with themselves, Rex's death represents a spectacular failure, my punishment for rushing through the game, ignoring experience-boosting side quests. Thankfully, my brain doesn't work this way. I don't enjoy fussing at myself or trying to outsmart the game. I play games the way I want and roll with whatever bruises they give me. Losing Rex was a hell of a shiner, but by the end of Mass Effect 1, my shepherd had put the bloody matter behind her, rose to the challenge, and righteously kicked some Reaper ass. 
Mass Effect 2's prologue is the best video game beginning I've ever played. Not only does the destruction of Shepard's beloved spaceship Normandy serve as an iconic, disruptive, the rules just changed and you're in the shit now moment, the subsequent death and resurrection of Shepard effortlessly reboots the character, her abilities, and her in-game experience, creating a perfect starting point for both veteran and new players. A clean slate for all, completely justified by story. So damn clever. But the slate wasn't completely clean. Mass Effect 2 is about the ruin and reassembly of family. In it, Shepard is tasked with saying farewell to the Alliance, the institution that forged her, or him, into a warrior leader, and must work with the dangerous shadow organization Cerberus. Here, Shepard must reforge relationships with allies two years gone and make many new ones. The objective? To build a Dirty Dozen-inspired suicide squad tasked with taking down the Collectors, an alien race working for the Reapers. Nearly all of the crew members Shepard recruits are outsiders, untethered humans and aliens who are either familyless or have deep familial issues they wish to repair. To ensure the loyalty of her crew, Shepard must help these misfits. Genetically engineered human Miranda Lawson wishes to protect her kid's sister, who is in fact a clone of Miranda herself, from her tyrannical father. Masked quarian Tali Zora and human Jacob Taylor discover dark secrets about their fathers, servicemen who were highly regarded. Asari knight-errant Samara must confront and murder her daughter, who has become a serial killer. In contrast, Jack, a remorseless criminal and killer, had no family. She had been abducted as a child by Cerberus, the very organization with whom Shepard is now in league, and was confined at a research facility that tested her remarkable telekinetic powers for years. She eventually escaped, murdered anyone in her way, and lived a thug's life until she was arrested and tossed into a cryogenic prison. Shepard springs her from jail in Mass Effect 2 and helps her destroy the research facility that broke her mind and spirit all those years ago. Jack was damaged goods, bruised to the bone. She resented authority, seemed pathologically selfish, was unreservedly surly, and was hella great in a fight. She and Shepard got on just fine. I reckon Jack would ditch her bad attitude after I helped her say goodbye to her painful past. But she didn't. Because saying goodbye is never that easy. Indeed, it was the appearance of another Krogan in Mass Effect 2 that reminded me of the blood on my own hands and how I'd failed Rex and the Krogan species in the first game. The creature named Grunt was a young Krogan, grown in a vat, genetically engineered to be pure, a super-soldier, a relentless killing machine. He was sleeping in a stasis chamber when my shepherd found him. Shepard had a clear choice in how to proceed. Leave the chamber closed and keep the apex predator sleeping inside, or open the chamber and risk the safety of, well, frickin' everybody. This next bit is important to understand. I didn't choose to open the tank because I wanted a new squad mate, or a better game ending, or other perks metagamers savvily strategize about. I chose to open the tank because I wanted to make things right. I knew Grunt couldn't replace Rex, and indeed, I didn't take a shine to him the way I did my pal from Mass Effect 1, but I reasoned there was a karmic debt that needed to be paid. My bad decisions had contributed to the taking of a Krogan life, 
and here I was, bringing a new one into the world. A quick sidebar. This karmic subtext is an invention all my own, of course. Internalized, deeply personal, player-created narratives like this one are perhaps the thing I love most about the Mass Effect games and other superb choice-driven games such as The Walking Dead. This guilt I had, the desire to right wrongs from games past, it was all created in my mind, a byproduct of my emotional investment in the world, characters, and plot. Great writing does this. Great voice performance does this. Great character animation does this. One of my most memorable internalized narrative beats in the series occurred during the end game of Mass Effect 2. In the midst of invading the Collector base, Shepard's crew was besieged by swarms of Seekers, insect-like things that sting and paralyze their prey. I had to choose a squatty with biotic, or telekinetic, powers who could create a force field bubble to protect the squad against the swarm. Samara, the super-powerful Asari Knight Errant, was the clear choice. She was nearly 1,000 years old and a disciplined, even-tempered telekinetic. But I wanted unpredictable Jack, she of the ruined past, she who was pathologically selfish, to have a bona fide hero moment, a moment where she was given the greatest responsibility of all. I had no idea if she'd come through. I just knew that after a lifetime of living in the dark, she needed a moment to shine bright. She did. But back to the middle of Mass Effect 2 and Grunt and the stasis tank. My shepherd opened the tank, and a great story arc began. When it came to Grunt and the Krogan, it wouldn't be my last emotionally motivated decision. In Mass Effect 2, I ordered the fast-talking Salarian Dr. Morden to save some data regarding a genophage cure that had been obtained through terrible, unethical medical research. It was unlikely it could ever lead to a cure, but it didn't matter. Not to me. I was trying to make things right, see? A Second Chance In Mass Effect 3, curing the genophage became a priority for the Krogan. Considering my shepherd's arc through the series, and my personal feelings about Rex, the genophage, and the unjust punishment of the Krogan 1,000 years ago, my character did everything she could to broker an alliance between the genophage's creators and the Krogan. My shepherd bird-dogged a cure, using the unethical research data saved from Mass Effect 2. She allied herself with the species at every turn, especially so with the female Krogan Eve. As a player, I knew that the Krogan, if cured, might hunger to conquer regions of the galaxy as they had done generations ago, but I hoped that they would instead help maintain the galactic unity Shepard was building during this stage of the war. This was a big risk, considering the subversive, revenge-minded talk hailing from Reeve, the Krogan clan leader with whom I liaised. Ultimately, I had faith that trust and mercy were the best possible options. Trust and mercy. My character had come a long way from being the human-centric, ruthless grunt of Mass Effect 1. There were moments when I could have sabotaged the genophage cure. I didn't. I saw it through. My shepherd lost a dear ally in the process, surely another moment of karmic balance, for victory and closure cannot come without sacrifice. 
And as I watched the snowflakes of Genophage Cure drift down from Tachunka's dusty sky, I finally let Rex go. I finally put that bloody business to bed. Those terrible ninety seconds, all those dozens of hours ago. A Final Choice I can't say for certain if Rex's death and my relentless games-long pursuit to right that particular wrong influenced my final decision in Mass Effect 3 in a meaningful way, but it certainly informed it. Players of the third game recall the ending's three primary choices. Destroy the Reapers, which would also kill all synthetic life forms throughout the galaxy, such as the Geth and Edie. Even with the Reapers gone, interstellar peace would not be guaranteed. Synthetics and organics might war once more. The Krogan could rise up again. Control the Reapers, which would kill Shepard but inject her mind into theirs, ensuring the elimination of the Reaper threat. Even with the Reapers no longer wrecking the galaxy, interstellar peace would not be guaranteed. The galactic unity I'd helped create could easily unravel. Initiate synthesis, in which organic and synthetic life forms would integrate on the cellular level. This would render the Reaper's objective to prevent organics from extinction due to an inevitable organic-synthetic war as obsolete. Due to this galaxy-wide uplift in evolution, interstellar peace would be guaranteed. Shepard's mission from the beginning of the Mass Effect series was to destroy the Reapers. Considering the galaxy-wide horrors, or meticulously planned control, depending on your perspective, the Reapers committed every 50,000 years, I was on board with these orders. Kill the fuckers. Kill them all. And yet, at that moment, as my shepherd stood in the heart of the crucible, panting and bleeding out, my mind reeled from the responsibility and the impossible stakes. Should I sacrifice millions of innocent synthetic life forms, such as the Geth, for a greater good, the destruction of the Reapers? Trillions of lives would be saved. But I consider the genophage and the unspeakable genocide it wrought for a thousand years, a decision the Krogan did not make for themselves. Did I have the right to kill the Geth, just as Ashley Williams had killed Rex on Vermeer? Alternately, should I guarantee a lasting galaxy-wide peace, by choosing synthesis. In one swoop, my decision could end the Reaper threat and harmonize all sentient life in a way never before seen, a genuine leap forward in evolution. But I considered the uplifting of the Krogan 2,000 years ago. Did I have the right to make such a sweeping decision for all species ever, a decision with no takebacks? The Krogan hadn't been ready back then. Would the rest of us be now? And then my mind turned to the genophage cure and how I'd gone to incredible lengths to ensure its successful creation and release. I'd done so because it was the right thing to do. It was just. The decision had not been without risk. The cured Krogan might declare vengeance on the galaxy someday, and they'd be within their right to do so. But I had had faith back then, faith that trust and mercy were the best possible options. And that was where my mind settled, here, now, in the heart of the citadel. I had faith that it would work out. My shepherd staggered to the panel that would sacrifice her life 
and activate her consciousness's control over the reapers. Trust and mercy, the two qualities my shepherd didn't have at the beginning of Mass Effect 1, would be what she shared now. Trust in the galaxy to remain unified. Mercy for the reapers. The ending was wonderful. A Remarkable Experience Now that the story is over, I regard the Mass Effect games with the same reverence I have for such other brilliant science fiction stories as The Matrix and Werner Vinge's novel A Deepness in the Sky. I wish I could completely forget them so that I could experience them again for the first time. For me, the trilogy represents a miraculous thing. It is an experience that one does not control, but influences, a narrative that celebrates personal choice, but wisely and rightly keeps its true rudder far from players' hands. And yet, at nearly every beat during the dozens of hours I was in its story world, I was thoroughly convinced that every moment of Mass Effect was my own. I intellectually understand it's all a complex illusion, a fabrication of polygons, textures, and dialogue written by someone like me. It's make-believe, man. But it evoked genuine emotion, passion, and creative inspiration and aspiration. As I said, a hearty chunk of my mind stubbornly remains back there, on those many worlds, considering the many choices I made. The rest of my mind... The part that's here with you now will marvel at it for months to come, this genuine and awe-inspiring work of art. Next up, we have Lily Scaldaferi, the artist for Extra Credits, talking about the center of the universe. I start um i guess i'll just start with my theory about what the ending actually means to me and the way that i took it in um and i know this is obviously a a very uh i guess it's 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 it's, it's a perspective thing so it can be completely different um so the hardest thing for people to accept uh, in life is after you die you're going to be forgotten pretty quickly. Um, and this is just a really, this is just a natural thing. This is how the world functions. The world moves on after we go. Uh, and this is also why we create things. And this is why we make art because we want to be remembered. Um, you know, your decisions in your life, while they may seem huge to you personally and people around you, in the grand scheme of things, they really don't affect anybody. Um, this is kind of a, it's slightly pessimistic, but it gets better. Um, and I think, you know, so decisions that you might make, like who you marry and where you live and, you know, who you talk to, they're huge for you, but they don't really affect anybody else. Um, so I think what Mass Effect did was they took this idea and pretty much expanded it to, <laughs> I guess, a galactic level. Um, so you have Shepard making these decisions, and these decisions all felt super important as you were going through them. And, yeah, they were huge because you were dealing with multiple races and 
multiple worlds. But when it got right down to the ending, you know, people complained about how your decisions didn't really matter. Um, I think that was almost the point because, you know, it's <laughs> the universe is so big and it's constantly expanding and constantly changing. Um, so because everything is just so much bigger than Shepard, I think that was the whole point of the ending. And that's why I think, um, the endings didn't feel drastically different no matter what you chose. And I'm not a big fan of the one, two, three choice ending. I, I do in a sense in other games, I've definitely felt like it's a cop out, um, of just how a game ends, but I think in mass effect, it really hit a point. Um, because so much of the game was about your decisions. Um, and I really think it was more of a message of just being humble and humility in what we do every day. You know, we spend so much time thinking that we were the center of the universe. And I think this was really just a message of just reminding you how tiny we are in it. You know, the Reapers have been here a lot longer than we have. And we feel like we have so much pull and say over these things, but there's a lot more that we don't under, we don't know or understand. And I think that was the bigger message. And I also think, uh, there was a big message about just, um, life and death and film critic Hulk. I got a lot of my arguments from him. Um, he, he describes it as cycles and I, I think I, I see it as that way too, but I kind of felt like it was more of a story about stories and what we actually remember. Um, I heard on, uh, on radio lab, it's another podcast that I sent to you. Um, there are three stages of dying. There's when you actually physically die. There's when you're buried and you have your ceremonial dying. And then there's the last time anybody ever says your name, how long you're actually remembered and how long and what people have made of you since you've left this world. And I think the end credits or the post credits bit with telling the story of the shepherd was and it's like just a perfect example of that. Um, like it was the perfect cherry on top to this whole theory of just what we really remember. We don't remember the decisions Shepard made throughout everything else. We just, we remember what we remember the stories that people have told us. So, and I think the fact that <laughs> this was such a, an ironic way to see it after all of the response that it got in that I saw this as a huge, you're not the center of the universe. And then a lot of fans seemed like they were saying we are the center of the universe. We deserve better. And that's why I think I got really upset with the giant fan reaction because it was it was a display of people not being humble and not taking bigger ideas into account. And that just broke my heart. <laughs> so I also come at it as, you know, as a person working in games, like I'm working at a studio and I'm working with people making games. I work with people who used to work for Bioware. Um, and granted they did, I don't know anybody who worked on Mass Effect, but, um, it's just, 
it, it seriously sends just shivers up my spine of how inconsiderate some of these people can be. Just not even thinking about somebody spent years of their life making this game and, and the statement. And we just throw it in their faces and don't even think about the work and love that went into it. And also making games is really, really hard. <laughs> I don't think people think about that either. Um, the studio that I'm working at is not as big as Bioware by any means, but it's still a pretty big studio and we make, uh, more iPhone games, but the, the structure that's in a studio is generally the same in that it's, it's really determined a lot of, from a, a business perspective and, you know, a lot of people will, and, and Mass Effect absolutely did uh, have a lot of decisions made and you can pretty much call out what they were if, you know, any basic structure of executives. Um, for instance, boss battles tend to be thrown into games a lot because that's what a lot of executives think video games need to make money and multiplayer as well. That's another example. Um, so, you know, I, I know how difficult it is to get things passed because there's always, you know, three or four people saying, no, 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 that's not going to make money. We can't put that in the game. That's not going to work in the long run. And the fact that we even have a game like Mass Effect that exists at all, if you were to pitch that today, if Mass Effect didn't exist, it would be next to impossible to get that made, let alone it being a AAA budget on that kind of a game. I'm... When, when I first saw all of the, um, all of the backlash, I instantly just went on Twitter and ranted about it because I was just like, we got so much of this beautiful game. We got this giant world with this codex that has details about everything in it. Um, and we had these rich experiences with all of these uh, wonderful characters and all of these, all of these just, this universe that was created. And we focused on the last five minutes of the game. Like, there's an imbalance there, I think, that people need to think about. So. <laughs> My faith in humanity. Determined by Mass Effect reactions. <laughs> so.
is it. Isn't it? That was the rather good Mass Effect 3 launch trailer. Now I want you to go back to YouTube and watch the cinematic trailer in retrospect. I said it back before release and I'll say it now. This other one is truly horrible and absolutely sod all to do with what Mass Effect is really about. It's patently aimed at the lowest common denominator and imaginary billion simpletons who ensure that Michael Bay and whatever box-ticking blockbuster movies that are rendering skyscrapers into rubble on any given summer are left financially bloated a thousand times beyond what they actually provide us with. In this trailer, Earth's little white girls are threatened by big nasty robots who hate our skyscrapers. After the carnage and the robot zombies, Commander Shepard steps off his plane with his white girlfriend Ashley and they fight all the zombies. It culminates in a command for you, the viewer, to take Earth back. Not one alien is seen helping Shepard or the Alliance in this trailer because that would raise unsettling questions in the mind of these imaginary buffoons. Why would Johnny Template not simply kill Dogface, Fishboy, Octopus Girl, Gas Mask, X-Files and Space Toad the moment they set Claude Hoof on Earth? We've got to take back the planet, right? From these, you know, giant robot space lobsters that go... And finally, Shepard jumps through the air in slow motion towards a brute in the middle of a firefight brandishing his Omniblade. Now I hope he's got the difficulty set on casual, because if not, that's a death sentence. This is everything wrong with the way Hollywood is trying to pitch itself right now, and we're not helping the progress of gaming or growth of our industry in any meaningful direction by demanding that its AAA titles veer away from their often unsettling, strange and thought-provoking sci-fi roots and towards a homogenized, technological warfare-worshipping, soulless factory of unending, identical entertainment. If you want something to point out and say no more of, it's this trailer. Take back Earth? Why not ask ourselves instead what we can do to be worthy of her? Anyway, roundtables. Three of them. First up, Sharon and I get to chat with Marguerite Kenner of Cast of Wonders and her other half, Alistair Stewart. Nice to meet you both. I, I've got some, I remember <laughs> Alistair from years ago, but... Uh, oh, God, yes. And I, he I, sounds I, like very God. white right now, thanks to the cold. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do I do apologise, guys. I have a very Krogan voice at the moment. That's fine. <laughs> just, just give me Bring one. Shepard. Yeah. Shepard. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> all, okay. Seriously, all, all day I've been walking around town going, do you want me to arrest you? No, I want you to try. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so no pressure on you, Alistair, to actually do much talking, if, especially if you're actually in pain. Apparently, Marguerite, you were the one uh, who was doing most of the uh, actual um, playing of Mass Effect 3, right? That's right. We use what's called the buddy system when we play video games. Usually one person will steer and the other person is kind of the lookout. So, so as one of us is button mashing and controlling, that way the other person can look around and go, oh, there's something over there on your right you may want to pay attention to. So that was that was Alistair's job. I first started playing Mass Effect, the very first game. Well, it broke me on buying an Xbox because, like Portal, um, Mass Effect was um, an Xbox launch title. Um, and so I had to get an Xbox to play it because I had to play Mass Effect. I used to literally leave the title screen running so that I could fall asleep to the vigil track <laughs> at night before yeah, I got the soundtrack. The soundtrack was available at that point. I, was gonna say. I know, but 
it was just easier because then I could just play. I, also, I still you get to see the notes. earth, which is beautiful. Yes. I, I still have all my notes because I had a physical book when I was trying to keep track of everything. Because the, the weapon interface was not the most user-friendly on the oh, console God, no, for the no. first game. All of that upgrading and bullet swapping became very, very time-consuming. So I played the first game when it launched. And then um, I didn't play the second game until last Christmas. Um, I didn't have access to that machine anymore, which is the short version of the story. And so um, last year when I was – I'm on – I'm doing law school right now. And so Christmas break was the first real break I'd had in a long time. Alistair bought me the trilogy um, when they repackaged all three games. Hmm. Uh, So I replayed the first one and then launched directly into the second and the third. I had played about the first four hours of the second game at a friend's house. But that is as far as I'd gotten. And I had never had access to three or any of the DLC when I played them through um, right. in December. So do you actually so play them back to back? All three, yeah. Whoa. Uh, having yeah. actually attempted that this year, I, I, I burned out when it came to the beginning of Mass Effect 3. So uh, how did you keep going? Was it just the novelty factor of finally getting in there? Or well, I'm assuming, was this the first proper time you'd played through two as well then after that initial? Yeah, it okay. was the first time I'd ever completed two. Right. Like I said, I had just started it. Um, and I knew I loved the first game a lot. <laughs> and I was actually able to import my save. So that saved me some time when I decided to jump to two. Yeah. Um, and I just got hooked all over again. I, the story is so compelling, it drives you forward. I didn't mm-hmm. want to stop. And then you started recruiting new characters, and then it's the whole, well, do I want to go with the lo- older love interest or look at all these new love interests? And, you know, <laughs> by the time you got to the second game, I li- I, literally, I finished the second game, I reached my hand over, and Alistair was holding out the third disc. Nice. And I was just, that's it, now. Inst- he had pre-installed, you know, pre-installed it, so all that stuff had downloaded, it had all updated, and I just, click, next. <laughs> I must play, I must play now. Did you also play the DLC for two? Because Shadow Broker and The Arrival and uh, Kasumi. I yeah. I've played all of the DLC for two and three with one exception, and mm-hmm. that is in our load, I could never get past one point in Omega. It would constantly glitch. Right. We, re- we reinstalled it. I think it was seven times. Something ridiculous like that. Mm-hmm. It would get to this one specific door, mm-hmm. and that would be it. So I, have ne- I haven't completed Omega, which was heartbreaking because I met the female Turian character and never got to do anything more with her. I was like, and I have a friend who's obsessed, obsessed with Arya. And she, when she learned that Arya had the potential of being a love interest if you played Omega correctly, it she she played three all over again. So I have played all the DLC. Um, Shadow Broker is fantastic. Before mm. Citadel, it was the hands down best piece of DLC they had ever mm-hmm. done. Which is too bad because is it Arrival, the last one? The one yeah, Arrival's the one that basically bridges the two. Yeah. It's horrible. It's the worst piece of DLC they've ever done. Agreed. You're, you're on this small little facility <clears throat> which keeps spawning thousands and thousands of people for you to kill. Oh, hang on, hang on. Is it worse than Bring Down the Sky on the original Mass Effect? Uh, I was, that was the Batarian thing. It was horrible. I 
bring down oh, this okay. stuff. I didn't have a problem with that, but that's because at the time I've read all the novels as well. Yeah, yeah. And I had just read the prequel novel starring Anderson and mm-hmm. Kaylee. And so I had just kind of learned about the Batarians. So mm-hmm. I liked being able to see them uh, right. in the game. So I didn't have a problem with it, but no arrival was awful. And, and it's because it breaks the primary rule of mass effect. Shepard can always find another way mm. in arrival. Yes. There was no other way you were so railroaded into this has to happen which is logical. It makes sense. It's a good breach into the third game. But I was um, robbed of the chance to find another way. I'm a femshep, and I'm paragon to the max. And I couldn't save these people or stop this from happening. And I was just, I was, I was livid. <laughs> I was outright livid with how they did it. It's almost like they were trying to prep the world for a uh, what some might interpret as a no-win situation at the end of the third game. That's an interesting. Reason. See, let's let's talk about the ending to the third game. Yes, a lot of people on this podcast are going to, and, and we definitely want to get your take on it because that that's a good lead-in, actually. Um, <laughs> what did you um, make of it? Well, first <clears throat> of all, I never played the original ending. By the time I got into three. <sighs> The the extended ending was available. The only one I'd seen. Right. Um, green, by the way, the appropriate Paragon choice. Thank you very much. Also, it matched Thane, who is my love interest. So, you know, we'll just roll with that. I I don't think it's a no-win scenario. I think it's they're all win scenarios. I never went into the third game with the assumption that Shepard would live. And anybody who had been in Shepard's place realistically must have known in their gut that this is a character who's going to ultimately die and save the world because all three solutions save the world. They just save it in very different ways. The red solution, kill them all, kick them out. Give us, give me another 50,000 years. The blue solution, all the fighting stops. I take over. Now I'm in charge. The green solution, synthesis. Remember what the ghost, I don't even know what that kid's name is. The ghost child. The catalyst. Yeah, he he says that synthesis is inevitable. And he says specifically, if you don't pick it now, somebody's going to pick it eventually. All you're going to do is jump the gun. So I see all three endings as good scenarios. It's just a matter of, I think, how in touch you were with Shepard's inevitable outcome. The person I cried for dying at the end, we're not going to talk about Morden because I'll, I'll break into tears. He's a very what? model of a Scientist Solarian. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> Morden, the cure ready. Yes, loaded for dispersal in two minutes. Procedure traumatic for Eve, but not lethal. Malin's research invaluable. She's okay? Headed to safety now. Her survival fortunate. We'll stabilize new government should Rex get any ideas. Good match. Promising future for Krogan. Yeah! Control room at top of Shroud Tower. Must take elevator up. You're going up there? Yes. Manual access required. Have to counteract STG sabotage. Ensure cure dispersed properly. Morton, this whole thing is coming apart. There's got to be another way. Remote bypass impossible. STG countermeasures in place. No time to adjust cure for temperature variants. No. No other option. Not coming back. Suggest you get clear. Explosion likely to be problematic. Morton, no! Shepard, please, need to do this. My project, my work, my cure, my responsibility. Would have liked to run tests on the seashells. I'm sorry. I'm not. 
Had to be me. Someone else might have gotten it wrong. I have a friend who played re who recently played Citadel <laughs> and missed the data pad oh, after the party. She didn't know it was there. I said, "You have to reload." <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. I loved yeah. that. Oh, it was oh the, the 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 last bit. Nope, stick to patter songs. That's what broke me. Oh, um, I was stalking you. Oh, but the, the death I cried for was Anderson. Yeah. He's the one that felt gratuitous. Not Shepard. I knew Shepard was gonna die, or, or at least not come out in some way or another. If anything makes me upset about the three possible endings, it's the fact that there's the tease that Shepard could be alive with the red one. Yeah. Because I don't like that. I mean, I love fan art, and I, believe me, I've collected quite a bit of fan art, and I know that everybody has their happy endings with, you know, various love interests and various children and et cetera, et cetera. But that was never a realistic expectation of mine. It might have been because I picked Thane as my love interest in two and three. Mm. And that story arc is specifically about dealing with what time you have left. Yeah. Thane knows he's going to die. And the interpretation I took <clears throat> from that is that Shepard also knows she's going to die. That and it's just reason. about how much Thane time they spent together. For number two, I, I, I sensed a kindred spirit in him. Yeah. Carry on. No, he was absolutely... Well, I started off... Do you want me to talk about love interest, or do you want to answer yeah, questions? No, 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 no. I, I prefer you just to go with whatever comes straight to your head. Love interest-wise, I completely and utterly understand why everybody likes Garrus, because he mm. is jazz smooth. <laughs> and if <laughs> I ever... And Even if I that, ever, that bit in Citadel where he's like, um, uh, when you try... That have to, was the best part. No, the best part about, other than the tango... <laughs> The best part about Garrus in the Citadel is the first part where you finish the thing with Joker and you're like, oh, crud, I'm on the run, blah, blah, blah. And you call in and you go, I'm going to need some help. And you just hear Garrus chuckle. And he says, of course you are. I'm like, oh, you smooth mother. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should also point out Rex people's elbowing the uh, surface oh. at that point is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. If there is a great tragedy of Mass Effect, is that 
Erdnott Rex was never, never, ever, ever love interest. And as far as I'm concerned, Ouch. you get to Chichanga and Edie tells you that someone has filed a breeding request for Shepard. That was Rex. It's <laughs> <laughs> a sign of respect. That was Rex. <laughs> nice. Carry on. Okay, so... Oh, you were talking I, about Anderson, that was it. And that, uh, did, Anderson, was there any more to that one, specifically? Yeah, Anderson was the death I kind of mourned the most, other than Morden's. Mm. Legion's, to some extent. But Legion was always set up as such a Christ-like figure, yeah. you expected it the way he went. And it wasn't about how he was going <sighs> to die, it was about how he was going to influence Tolly mm. before he died. As far there, as I was concerned, there would almost have been a wholeness in keeping Anderson alive because he does start out the uh, trilogy as the shepherd who's a little bit too old to be doing what shepherd's doing. Exactly. Uh, so it's almost like he's that aspect of shepherd living on uh, into our old age and retirement. That part of you that you can't be. Uh, yeah, I I don't. I guess I don't understand the narrative of Anderson dying at the end. I understand the cleanliness of it mm. being, well, we're about to blow up this whole gigantic device we've just created and we got to keep him alive somehow. I don't know how. So I can see it from a logistical, I guess, point of view of the game designers, but story-wise... It doesn't make sense to me. I think, I mean, he could just have been on the ground sort of talking to Shepard through a, a, an earpiece and it could just have been a showdown between Shepard and the uh, elusive man and he could still have been with Shepard in spirit at the end. But I, I think there has you have to cry for someone. Mm. How does it work? It's, uh, it, well, in, maybe- in Return of the King, they get you ready for um, the uh, separation of Frodo and Sam mm-hmm. by... Um, having Faramir ride out first so that you're in a, a... Oh, no, hang on. No, it's the other way around. Frodo and Sam separate so that you're already heartbroken and then Faramir rides out and it completely breaks you. Home is behind the world ahead And there are many paths to tread Well, maybe it could be from the point of view of if no one in your in your games had ever died. Yeah. I mean, if you never picked up Legion or if you convinced Morden to carry on, there had to be a death. Yeah. Available because um there was who there was somebody, I can't remember who it was. It was an author who was talking about his second playthrough of Mass Effect and how he wanted in this game to specifically be Renegade. Mm. J.C. Hutchins. J.C. Hutchins, the whole way through. He's on and this show. The, and <laughs> Fantastic. By, good, because by the time he, he, t- he talks about, by the <clears throat> time he got to the middle of the third game, he couldn't not. His his viewpoint had been changed yeah, so much yeah, of that he couldn't. And to, I was an ultimate paragon. I mean, I would reload and redo conversations to get paragon points. There are mm. two points... Two or did we? I think uh, we figured think, out it was three. I think it's three. There are three points in all three games combined where I took renegade actions, and I took renegade actions instinctively before my conscious brain realized I was pressing buttons on a controller. Mm. Now, two of those involved Kailang and weaponry, and I guess you can imagine why. Mm. I did exactly the same. I reloaded. I reloaded and killed him three times in a row. <laughs> that was for Thane. <laughs> but the other was the headbutt. 
on Tuchanka. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it just felt like the appropriate thing to do. Well, it's a <laughs> and I hadn't respect. realized it was a renegade. I just went, yeah, I have to headbutt these guys. It's it's establishing dominance over them. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily the wrong thing. Exactly. And I really like the character of the Krogan Shaman. Mm. It's kind of unfortunate, almost, that if you keep Rex alive throughout the entire arc of the story, that that character doesn't get developed yeah. Same with Reeve. I mean, he's a fantastic counterpoint. I mean, they have almost Braveheart-esque scenes when you return to Chujanka, and I'm a little busy fighting a raper! <laughs> I loved that sequence. And just the way he laughs and says, you get all the fun. Oh, Rex, you're my big Krogan homie. <laughs> he is, he's my home frog. Right there, just a picture of Rex and big Krogan homie. <laughs> yeah, he is, he's my home frog. Love him. <laughs> have you seen the custom hoodies that they've designed? Hang on, let's have a look at them, shall we? I've got um, the uh, Shepherd armor hoodie from the Bioware store. No, it, the, these were conceptual ones that I don't think were ever actually put together, but they were for every race, for every member of your party. So there's one for Rex, and there's one for Grunt, and there's one for Liar, and there's one for everybody, and they're beautiful. And I hope they someday go actually into production, because I want them all. Okay. Though probably not the Thane one, because wearing a clothing that looked like you skinned your online digital boyfriend would probably be a little weird. I'm looking at it now. Is it, um, is it, it's just sort of designs, isn't it? Yeah, somebody did a design of all the different ones. Cool. They're really pretty. The Morden one looks awesome, but the Liara one sounds just... I was about to say, I want that Liara one, and then I realized it's got boobs. It has boobs on it. (laughs) Yeah, same with the Aria one, unfortunately, I think. I want to see a man wearing that. That will be awesome. And there's, oh, there's a Zaid one. Yeah. (laughs) He's a kind of tragically underused character. You think? Well. Talk about Zaid, because we haven't had anyone really talk about him in this, uh, or certainly not in a positive light on this series. I liked him. I thought it was a great character. Um, His, quote, loyalty mission, unquote, was very, I think, very telling, because it talks about how he came up and went through the ranks, and it's hard to stick to a moral core when you're a mercenary. It's also um, one of the ones which is thematically closest, I thought, to Mass Effect 2. That 2 is the one where you have Shepard literally die in the opening, yeah. having to rebuild their ethical core as they go. And that's a really strongly paralleled, I felt, in how you can run Zaid's loyalty mission. Yeah. I yeah. Dug, yeah. No, I agree completely. I thought Zaid was... A, and he had some of... Other than uh, Kasuni... He had some of the best just hanging around on the ship dialogue. Plus, it was fun to play with that stupid garbage <clears throat> compactor thing. Yes. Every time you went in there. It's like, I don't know why this is here, but it's cool. <laughs> I'm going to push the button again. Why not? So, um, what were the, any other key points of engagement for you, uh, specifically for Mass Effect 3 here? Uh, there's Every single one of those dream flashback sequences. Mm-hmm were quite emotional, especially as you're starting to hear people talking and you're, yeah. you're trying to figure out what does this mean? What's going on? There's a lot of symbology here. Um, 
I didn't the first time round. I uh, I didn't uh, get what was being said during a lot of those when the whispers are happening. But the second time round, I had the subtitles on, um, yes. and I noticed. I was like, "Wow! I just realised what that line's from." I always play with the subtitles on oh, because right. I know sometimes I miss things like that. Sharon's making a very smug face at me because she <laughs> she feels the same. And every time I set a game up, Alex <laughs> is like, "Are you sure you want the subtitles on? Don't you want to turn the subtitles off so you can't you, so you can get properly absorbed in it?" No, because well, I will miss things. Well, my problem yeah. is that my my eye is automatically drawn to them i read what they're going to say and then it's just a case of like almost like i know what they're going to say and and mm, you it, find it, them distracting yeah i, See, I, I try to zen backup out. system if i've missed something i can mm. glance down really quick sure, yeah. and pick up on what it's I'm all about relaxing your eyes and looking at this what's happening and not, and not letting them get exactly caught. yes um it's almost like a magic see. eye exactly um of course i Bald like a freaking baby when Morden died. Yeah. Bald like a baby. And specifically, it's the return of the vigil theme. Yes. Yeah. Musically, they do such interesting things. I mean, I have all three soundtracks. Mm-hmm. I have all the DLC soundtracks. I have a bunch of tribute music, the whole nine yards. And in the first game, that vigil theme is so dominant. I mean, it's the upsweeping starship troopers, military, we're going to save the world sort of thing. And it gets quieter and quieter and quieter as the games go on. To the point in the third game where every time you hear it, it's Mm. almost a trigger. It means pay attention. Something is important. Something's happening. More and more. And with Morden, you know, someone else would have gotten it wrong. And when it sweeps up, I just, oh, God. It's it's emotionally, I think it's one of the hardest points of the game mm. is knowing that, especially if you have been a Krogan supporter the whole time, knowing that this is going, this is it, this is what I've been striving for for three games. The first time I played one, I spent three hours in Saren's base looking for that cure that everybody said was supposed to be there. And finally I had to real I had to give up on it and realize, oh God is not here. No Rex You know? That's uh, like, I would imagine like the people trying desperately to find out a way to bring Eris back to life in Final Fantasy VII. Exactly. There's, a way. There's got to be a way, exactly. <laughs> and so to know at the end you know, th- this is going to happen. It's going to happen, but it's going to take Morden and that he's so okay with it. Yeah. It's the fact that he's so accepting that this is, again, I mean, you can call... cheerful. It, yes. The, the underwritten, you know, the underlying theme of the second game is daddy issues. I mean, everybody's got them. Yeah. And everybody's talking about them. The whole point of the third game is redemption for everyone. Everybody gets to kind, if you play it, on a Paragon scale, everybody gets to pick the way either they go out or that they reach their goal. Cal Rieger, big character, fantastic voice acting because it's Alec Baldwin. Alec? Adam. Adam Baldwin. I love every <coughs> single piece of fan art that's about – because you can tell from the way he talks he's got a huge crush on Tolly. And just that little piece of reading that you get later on, you know, one of those communiques where he dies, yeah. holding off a colony. It's like, oh, those those little moments of attrition that start to pile up. It just really makes the scale of the third game huge because they come back and they touch on 
every single element of every single bit character you've seen for all these hours, they all get a glancing blow somewhere, an email, a mention, a conversation in that gigantic cargo hold on the Citadel, all of it. This all comes back. If you Google images Cal Rega, um, mm. there is a picture about four lines, no, three lines down of Cal Rega and someone has photoshopped Jane's hat onto him. Oh Fantastic. my gosh. Classy. <laughs> it's fairly cunning. He was such a fun character. I really enjoyed him. I mean, I had to reload like three times to make sure I didn't get him killed, but I did it in the end. I've only seen footage of this because I've never gotten Legion anywhere near um, anything other than the end of the game. But if you mm-hmm. recruit Legion early and then do the uh, the mission with Cal, uh, he freaks out that there is a guest standing right behind you. I've always <laughs> wanted to do that. I thought if I did a playthrough again, I would change yeah. around the order. Because, of course, the first person you go for is like... Uh, sniper in Omega, huh? Yeah. I wonder who that could be. That's another one of those money shots for the for the Garrus fans. Yeah. Just that moment where you come around that second <clears throat> story corner and he's like practically a pinup. I'm like, <laughs> oh man, you were so cool, Garrus. There's been one of the best comics they did, and most of the Mass Effect comics are very good. We have them all but and the novels. One of the best ones is the spotlight on Garrus between the two games because it's the 10 minutes leading up to that point yeah. where he knows he's pinned down he knows he's going to die mm. calls his dad and his dad of course being a hard bitten Tory and CSEC officer is off in the wild somewhere doing something hard and uh, he asks Garrus how he's doing so some target practice how's it going could be better and you get this fantastic moment of, of kind of dude speak where what's very clearly going on is thousands of words of kind of emotional dialogue and goodbye and all it is is well, good luck son and at the very last minute the very last panel in the image is the N7 logo through his sniper scope and the nice. last dialogue is, is Gareth going dad I've got to sign off I think my odds have just improved nice and it's really nicely done. It's one of the best ones. There's another one of, um, what's his name? The, he's not a CSEC officer. He's a security guy on the checkpoint. Bailey. Bailey. Yeah. And how he gets maneuvered by Udina as Udina is starting to, you know, feel the influence of Cerberus. And uh, he, Udina <clears throat> winds up manipulating Bailey into killing What's his name? The CSEC guy who's there before the first CSEC officer you run into on the Citadel. Who's corrupt and no, he's not corrupt. It's the the guy who's talking about how you know Garrus is a hothead and he wants to do things quick. The older, cooler—I can't remember his name. It's he's not the awesome general you deal with in the in the third game, but it's the Turian CSEC officer in the first game. Who isn't Garrus? I can't remember his name, but he the reason. Bailey's in his job is because Udina's manipulated him into assuming he's corrupt and he kills him. Executive Palin? Yeah, Palin. Palin, that was it. Look, if you just type in wiki, all of a sudden up comes the Thane Krios page. La la la. Okay, we've only got a few more minutes left. I'm so sure. glad I managed to get you guys isolated for this because you've got so much enthusiasm for this. That, I uh, love this game. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, literally to the point now, 
I finished it. It was after Christmas. It was about February. It was about Valentine's Day. Your stunts get itched. And I haven't been able to emotionally commit to a video game since. I've played and almost finished Bioshock Infinite. Mm -hmm. And I love that story. And it's beautiful and it's compelling. But I want to start either Dragon Age or Skyrim. Something Mm. with a nice, long, meaty development. Oh, go for Dragon Age. There is almost no... Uh, in no comparison between Skyrim and Mass Effect. Like, uh, Skyrim has something stuff going on, but you don't engage in any way. Any uh, you know what, actually? Do you have Dragon Age 2 available to you? Well, the Ultimate Edition is about to come out, which mm. has all the games and all the DLC preloaded, which sounds fantastic. That's probably how I'm going to do it. Dragon Age 2 is recommended because there's more of a, a, a character there, Hawk, who actually has a personality and a past and a voice actor. Hey, 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 hey. There's a guy named Alistair. Back off. <laughs> I see what you mean. I already have the t-shirt that says, I love Alistair with the little dragon and the heart. And I don't even know what that means, but it's already on my wish list. Yeah, actually, then, it, in all seriousness, if, if you're already attached to this character, Alex, Alistair, sight unseen, then maybe, yes, playing through Dragon Age 1 might be a good idea. Mm. It's you. I mean, there are there is a great support crew in, in Dragon Age 1. I just, I like a character... I hate the mute characters who don't actually say things. I don't hate them. I just I hate playing them when Shepard has already set the bar so high for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I haven't been able to emotionally commit to a new game mm-hmm. since Mass Effect yet. I'm just now, like, recovering enough that I'm like, okay, okay, I can dig into something now. It'll be okay. But, of course, now school starts in a week and a half, so it'll be the constant balancing act. Oh, well. I, I recommend Red Dead as well. John Marston is an excellent character. We have Red Dead, don't we? We have Undead Nightmare. We don't have Red Dead Redemption. Oh, all right. I thought we had... Don't we have Revolver, though? Red Dead Revolver? Mm-mm. Oh, completely different game. Completely different era. It's mm-hmm. um, The character in Red Dead Revolver isn't the same as uh, John Marston, and um, it's, it's night and day. No, uh, Red Dead Redemption, the character of John Marston is, is one of these shades of grey uh, type. A, a man who's trying to do the right thing in a horrible situation, as opposed to most Grand Theft Auto games where they get dragged down very, very quickly. Yeah, kicking and screaming on us. Yeah. Dishonored <laughs> is actually the next one I oh, thought good, yeah. I would do because it's again it's standalone. It has two pieces of DLC. That's all they're mm. going to release, and they're both available now. Yeah. So that way, I thought I could just load it all up, and that might lend itself more to kind of piecemeal playing. Where yeah. with the story games, I don't put it down, and then it's three o'clock, and I have class at seven, and it gets dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Dishonored has another needlessly silent protagonist. Mm. And that's that's a character who actually has a background, a history, a past, and every reason to speak, and doesn't. And it's mm. annoying. For me. But, every, you know, there are, there are arguments on either side of it, but... um uh, I, what was it I was playing recently with a, a, an FPS where the uh, character actually speaks? It was like a breath of fresh air. Oh, I remember. It was Bioshock Infinite. The idea of actually hearing the voice inside your head, it's been said for, for years. Oh, you can't do that. People will disengage. They want to put themselves on the character. No! Better, no. better written characters are never a bad thing. That's exactly. the job of a good voice actor, and it's why Jennifer Hale and oh. Mark... Mark Mark Mia. Whatever the brown-haired guy who's somehow on my game. (laughs) You never play. (laughs) I'm going to give Mark a chance. I've never done it before, but I'm going to, when I restart, which won't be too long because this has given me the itch as well, um, it will be as Mark Mia and I will be a goody two-shoes paragon because usually I'm mostly paragon but with renegade leanings and a real problem with authority, but of course femship. 
I see. I never had a problem with authority because it's Lance freaking Hendrickson is who's giving me orders. Yes, sir. Oh, I don't. I never minded Hackett because you know he's 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 proved his worth. But the council, the council, yeah. I oh, see. That's one of the things that really annoyed me. I go through the first game, Odina. I'm like, get the hell out of here, Anderson. Mm. Of course you're on the council. Then I die. Then I come back. Then I come back. Wait a minute. What do you mean you're not on the council? What was all that about? And that Solarian counselor who tries to get you to uh, sabotage the cure for the genophage. Oh, biggest yeah. villain in the whole game. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I was like, lady, hit the road. <laughs> I, I, I have, like, a whole list of saves. And they're all numbers of the saves written down with mm. all of the, like, cutscenes. My fav- One of my favorite ones is the first time you see Rex. Mm. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay, we have now run out of time, but it has okay. been great fun, great fun chatting to you, Marguerite. If, uh, if there's anything else that we're talking about on this show that you have a vested interest in, drop me a line on Twitter if you spot Absolutely. it being talked about, and I will make space for you because it's been great having you guys okay. on. Okay, that's – well, brilliant. Thank you very, very much. And um, have you got anything you guys want to plug? I'm the editor of Cast of Wonders, which is a young adult audio fiction podcast that just picked up its very first Parsec win this last week for a story by Rick Kennett called Now Cydonia, which is about Martians, uh, basically space cadets, Martian space cadets. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Marguerite, and thank you very much, Alistair. My pleasure. Before we go to the next section, I've got some statistics for you. And these are all on Mass Effect 3. Let's start with 88.3 million. That's 8,625.6 years. That's the number of hours played in single-player campaigns worldwide. Players who did not cure the genophage. 8%. I hope you all just doing it to see what would happen not because you actually believed it was the thing to do this is one of those choices where the game kind of really does steer you towards the right one players who did not get to meet rex in the mass effect 3 campaign 64 percent that implies 64 percent of you guys killed rex in the first game you heartless heartless bastards unless of course ashley killed him for you in which case it's not really your fault you were just dithering Although if that did happen, then like J.C. Hutchins, it could have completely turned around your attitude to playing. Which is why 92% of you cured the genophage. 37.6% of players achieved 100% galactic readiness. 4.0% of players completed the insanity difficulty. Hats off to you all, you're crazy. 39.8% of players earned a long service medal. The most popular squad members... In reverse order, Kaiden, Ashley, Tali, Edie, Vega, Garrus, and of course, Liara. Survival rate for each squad member, highest first, Vega, Garrus, Liara, Ashley, Edie, Tali, Kaiden, down at 17%. 82% played as male Shepard, 
That means only 18% played as female Shepherd. There are a lot of you guys missing out. 37% of you saved the Geth. 27% of you saved the Quarians. 36% managed to save both. But that does mean that more people successfully saved the killer robots over the Quarians. 3.8% of players shot Mordin, and it would have been in the back. Not a soul among them. 58% of players let Garrus win the shootout on the Citadel with Shepard. That was nice of you. Most used single-player classes. Most popular first Soldier, then Infiltrator, then Vanguard, then Sentinel, then Adept, then Engineer. A mere 5.1% versus 43.7% playing Soldier. That does, however, mean that around about 44% played Johnny Template, Male White, Soldier, Shepherd. Once again, that means a lot of people really missing out on some of the more intricate, complex and subtle elements of playing Commander Shepard. 10.7 billion enemies killed to date in Mass Effect 3 multiplayer. And 64.5% of you guys are Paragons, which means 35.5% of you are Renegades. I'm going to go ahead and bet that a fairly high percentage of those white male soldier class Johnny Template Shepherds were also Paragons. This is a game that shapes itself with experimentations. So I don't know about you, but after hearing a couple of them, I kind of want to go back and play some more. Starting, of course, at Mass Effect 1. Okay, I am back with Neil Taylor, James Perkins, and Jerome McIntosh, who were present on the first and second Mass Effect shows. And uh, were you guys all on the Mass Effect 3 yes. just the yep. we did last year? I yep. was indeed, yep. I wonder how much has changed since then. Um, I just go back and listen and see how my opinion has changed. <laughs> I do. I think, well, we were very, it was very light and fun in comparison to, uh, this one's gotten pretty heavy already, but uh, more on that later. Right. Uh, James. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hello. Describe to me the major points of connection for you uh, with Mass Effect 3. Which which bits really stood out and made you go, ooh, okay. Well, first of all, uh, like we said on the other shows, it's, it's a really in-depth choose-your-own-adventure. Everybody has a different experience with the game. Even if they are very similar set pieces, people have a different opinion. I played this, I've only played it through once, and the time I played it was the opening weekend of, it, of its release, and I put 36 hours in within within three days. So I played it, I was in that world almost non-stop for an entire extended weekend. Uh, so my opinion, as, as well as it being a choose-your-own-adventure, my opinion will differ to other people's because of how what a short space of time I played it in. Uh, some of the standout moments for me, really, is uh, with any trilogy, is the the third install, a third and final instalment, being one where you uh, say goodbye to the characters. And for me, it's the not the ending of the ending, but the initial lead up to the ending when you are saying goodbye to your crew. I was almost in in tears at, at that part of the game because I had 
spent so many hours with these characters, uh, developing these emotional relationships, uh, losing some along the way. Yes, I lost Tally. Um, but saying, saying goodbye, especially to Liara and having that, that connection with her, that little, um, cutscene of, of a connection within each other's minds, that was just, I, it took so much, uh, power inside me to, to hold back the, the tears because I knew what was coming and I knew I wouldn't see them again. And other standout moments for me include when you are entering the Quarian ship, um, which the Geth have taken over, uh, and if you save Tally, Shepard says to Joker that Tally's gonna love this. And then he says, well, let's tell her about this. Whereas my experience with me losing Tally back in Mass Effect 2, when Shepard says to Joker, Tally would have loved this. And that kicked off horrible, painful memories of that moment I screamed, no, at my TV screen when Tally was taken away by that swarm in the suicide mission. And who was your, I forget, who was your um, biotic during that one? Uh, I believe it was Samara. Oh, I've never had Samara fail on me. Yeah, I believe Samara, it was Samara. Samara and Jack are the only two that can do that. Are you sure it wasn't, um, ah, Miranda? <laughs> yeah, it was, it wasn't Miranda. Um, huh. it, unless it, 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 again, it could be Lord Commission based as well. So. Yeah, I believe yeah. that's, that's what it was. And it was a case of, with some, it, if, you hadn't got Samara loyal. It was a toss-up between one or two of your uh, gotcha. your team members losing their life. Uh, and I so didn't basically, you can still do the section. Uh, it's, it's not going to game over you because the entire group gets swarmed, but yeah. one of you is going down. Yeah, and unf- I did oh. not know that at the time, and unfortunately, that one was Tally. I thought it it tricked you so well at that moment, thinking you made it through, and then whoosh, off she went. But that was that was Mass Effect two. Now. As I said, that that moment when Shep said Tally would have loved this, I had to pause, put my controller down, and just take a couple of moments to, you know, get back to a composed uh, state. And that is, those two moments in a nutshell is just perfectly explain and show how amazing this series of games are uh, is. They you develop these amazing relationships with people that don't exist. And you forget that most of the time because you're so involved with this world. And Mass Effect 3, for me, caps it off perfectly well uh, in terms of bringing those relationships to an end. Also, I have no problem at all with the way the ending was originally done. Uh, I wasn't part of this uh, mass group of change the ending and then it got changed. I, I had no problems whatsoever so th- those those two moments are the standout moments for me for for Mass Effect Three. Uh, Jerome, uh, same, same question to you. Uh, what were the primary points of engagement for you, uh, and uh, and any standout moments, or or indeed uh, moments of disengagement? Anything that you just thought, oh, just, this could you know really have been done better. For me, Mass Effect Three was it. It does exactly what I wanted it to do. It was a finale, and it brought so many great things to a close um what now um i remember when the game first came out there was a huge controversy over the dlc 
and the fact that it leaked um, who you get, which was the Prothean Javik. Mm. And I love Javik as a character because being a Prothean, he sheds so much light throughout the um, the universe that you've been spending time in. I mean, I don't know if you guys, um, if you brought him with you on any of the missions, but I, I tried oh, yeah. to take him yeah. wherever because he gave so much insight because you got to remember he was, he may not have been a big scientist at the time, but he was a soldier and mm. to see, to hear what he thinks of how things have come along since he's been gone. I mean, the fact that Solarians to, when he was alive, were, they, they, weren't, they weren't that very, that evolved as they are now. Yeah. Um, they used to eat flies. Yes. One of the biggest moments that I enjoyed was the, um, the, when you meet, uh, Rex again, it's the whole thing with the female Krogan. The fact that they've reached a point where they are able to breed and you finally, you, you come to a, um, point where you get to essentially end the genophage. And it has one of the most heartbreaking moments in the series, Morden's death. How could I forget that? Oh, uh, man. Anything that bugged you about the game itself? To be honest, not really. Because I got what I wanted out of Mass Effect 3. I mean, you you got an insight into the Astaris history, the fact that they have this, they have this spirituality to them, yet Javik shed so much light on because they were uplifted by the Protheans. Everything that the everything Liara knew as, as her history and everything she had faith in was shed light upon and she, the fact she was quite angry about that to Javik. They argued throughout the whole level. I think the homeworld was uh Thessia. Thessia that's where it was. Mm. And you're going through all the relics and he's just he's essentially shooting down all these things she's believed throughout her life and she's spent so much time looking up to the Protheans and having yeah. this harsh soldier like person just shatter that world for her is quite literally it's quite, <laughs> yeah quite literally it's, it's world shaking for her yeah one of the best things that I, that I love the way that they they handled the um, Geth and Quarian war in my game I managed to broke a priest and they learn to live together the fact that Talia gets her homeworld back and I, th I think it held more meaning if you had Legion because he was he's he's always been the he's been the face of the Geth for me and the fact that both him and Tally throughout the series they started off quite well Tally hated Legion Legion wanted her to understand his point of view and the fact that they finally get to a point of understanding, not just individually yeah. as a race. It's, it was a great moment for me. As for the ending, I was perfectly fine. Even back when we first did the initial podcast, I really enjoyed it. And even now I think it's quite good. I mean, one thing I try, I, I used, to, I like to say is that the Mass Effect series 1, 2, and 3, it's all Shepard's story. Mm. And I, I noticed quite a few people were quite annoyed that Shepard was gone from the universe, but it's not... The Mass Effect universe is over. It's just 
Shepard's story is over. To a degree, they had the balls to do what the Halo crew did not. Yeah. There is something very arresting about the idea of the, the once and future king uh, that, that Master Chief personifies, that he, he, he never dies, he simply rests. But there's also something extremely timeless about a hero who will give everything, not just for a cause, but for people, either on the uh, grand scale of the entire universe that they're protecting and the small scale of the people that they actually care about. Most definitely. Oh, um, what, what did you guys think of the combat in general? I Not its finest hour. Okay, let's just talk combat. So, yeah, go. I think it kind of... Uh, my first playthrough at uh, release, uh, I would say the combat... It didn't feel as polished, perhaps. Some areas it did, but it didn't feel quite as polished as the second one. It felt quite a lot of a slog. And I didn't you and Sharon both have this problem with the combat section? We did, and I'm having difficulty really honing in on exactly what made the combat in Mass Effect 2 fun and for some reason the combat in Mass Effect 3 laborious, even on identical uh, uh, difficulties. Mm, maybe the pacing to it is a little off. Yeah. I, I, it's because it felt like you were doing there were more combat, like spread. It was less spread out. It was more combat, combat, combat for quite some time, most of the time. Yeah, and yes. even though... Mass Effect 2 may have had more short bursts yeah. as opposed to protracted... Skirmishes, sorry. Not yeah, Mars is a, a prime example of how that the combat section, combat in, on Mars, which is pretty close to the beginning of the game, just yeah. really drags for me. It's, it seems like that that can't be the only reason. This was the first time I actually played a Vanguard ever, so I was. Uh, uh, it took a while for me to get into actually the physicality. But once I'd really powered up, yeah. I, I was just destroying them. It was. That's it, my experience. <laughs> I felt like a, a human cannonball just bursting across the screen, laying waste to everything. Not that that was bad. It just it, I felt overpowered. Yeah. And then when I put it uh, up on, on difficulty, I got killed. So it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, a real, it's a juggling act. I think the combat is is an awkward juggling act because you have the different classes. I played through as an engineer, and you get that class right, you are pretty much a badass. But you have mm. to remember to stay back. Yeah. One more thing to add about the combat. Yeah. Uh, I played Mass Effect 3 on 360, and at the time I had my Kinect. Uh, and of course it's better with Kinect. So I found, I found myself shouting, Singularity! 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 Every five seconds, driving my parents absolutely bonkers. Because of course just pressing right bumper. <laughs> I thought I'd try it out because apparently it was better with Kinect, although it wasn't because it drove everybody mad. Is that, is that um, you only control yourself, or do you also control your squad mates? Uh, that was controlling my squad mates as well. Yeah, because oh, right, isn't right. it you call the name and then the move that you want them to do, isn't it? Yeah. So Liara Singularity, then. Yeah, mine was Liara gotcha. Singularity. Or if there's only one person in your party with a, spe- with a specific power, you just shouted that power and that. Yeah, that, that's just for people who live on their own. They're, they're, there's no reason to inflict that upon other people. But it was Connect <laughs> my arse. <laughs> yep. Let me think. Um, I know I'm definitely never going to be a Sentinel again in any game because, as I said, uh, back in the Mass Effect 1 show, it's just a way to make things go boom. See, I, I like the engineer for the one-two punch you can deliver. You can deliver the, 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 the... I can't remember the name of the moves now, but basically the one that burns the armour and the one that does the shields. Yes. Yeah. One-two, and you're done. Next time I'm going back, uh, I'll be a uh, biotic because I've never really just sort of gone, right, I can let go of all the guns and just rely on powers and, and the pistol. 
can be fun if you get those right with the one-two punch there with the biotic explosion. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's one thing I will say. They did they match powers a lot more this time. I mean, with the Vanguard, the whole well, they had to balance it for the multiplayer, didn't they? Yeah. The fact that they've got the um, zoom up to someone, and you can upgrade that to you to increase your shields, and then you do the ground move, which yeah. uses the shield. I I think they made they made the abilities work far more better. There's in there's, there's actual combinations in there that feel like yeah. combination moves mm. more than anything. I do this to do this. This is a really good combo, and if this person behind me does this, then all of a sudden it works together, and yeah. you feel like you're working as a team. Yeah. It's almost more, it's more like D&D, so you soften them up with this and then you with the, uh, the finisher. The only problem I can think I had with Mass Effect 3 was in the multiplayer. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so much the multiplayer itself, it was how you got, um, different characters and yeah. weapons. The fact that it was completely randomized, like you had, you had a better chance of getting something good, but it was completely mm. randomized and it was literally, built around microtransaction yeah just hoping that you go sod it I'll just buy this but even if you bought stuff it would still be random exactly you can't just buy it that oh, look, I want to be this class I suppose that is sort of fair but ultimately with the you know the folks with ridiculous amounts of money can just keep buying until they hit the class they want unless and you the, get the guest yeah. juggernaut which is completely overpowered <laughs> I will say actually about the multiplayer I did enjoy it but eventually it began to feel like an immense amount of pressure yeah uh, whenever I was in a party with you know three other people it was like I, I need to leave now guys I'm really tired oh we gotta keep going like, oh god I'm so okay I'll carry on then but it, so it felt more like uh, Warcraft I suppose or, or another MMO where your, your, your guild relies upon you in a very sp- specific concerted way which can be both very addicting and also life-consuming and sometimes tedious. Also, the difference between, um, like, bronze and silver and then <laughs> gold, gold is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, basically, you know, do you want to get slaughtered in three seconds? Let's try some gold! It's like, some chance, a bit of a chance, no chance. Yeah. And then they introduced platinum, oh. which was basically F you. Yeah, <laughs> and I only ever seem to use the uh, the finite items, which you uh, you know you'd stop. You have to in- initiate before the match on the ones where we were uh, like silver oh, yeah. and got wiped out. Or <laughs> well, like, oh, oh, we're going into gold. I'm going to need all the help I can get. Poof! What happened? That <laughs> uh, being said, it was it was a good multiplayer, and uh, mm, it's, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, yeah. yeah, it's one of those cases of. Oh, this game doesn't need multiplayer. Game comes out, people play multiplayer. Actually, it's pretty interesting. A pretty nice bit of multiplayer. So, again, it's 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 like better Bio- than Tomb Raiders. Better than Tomb Raiders. It's like yeah. Bioshock Two. Bioshock Two. That was announced that it had multiplayer. Everybody freaked out. Why yeah. does this need multiplayer? It came out. Really good fun multiplayer. Really great fun. One thing I would like to see this that the, what they've learned in the multiplayer and um, worked through is a all co-op mass effect uh still if it's possible to somehow make that story driven almost mmo style just you know smaller amount of players in the world and also allow every character to have some kind of impact on the narrative so it's like oh he chose that why the hell did you choose that that's what my character wants and then actually have lasting repercussions for those decisions i, I i've never played multiplayer like that before um i will say 
Is that going to be like, is that like the KOTOR one? The uh, Old Republic, it was yeah. like that, except uh, you actually got a point where in story parts in the flash, po- in the um, instances, mm-hmm. you all tried to give your answer, and mm-hmm. I think it was whoever did it fancy, fastest was the cannon, and that's, that's what... ridiculous, <laughs> whoever did it fastest. <laughs> no, I could, I could be remembering... most has the least priority. I will say I could be remembering it wrong. Well, uh, let's hope that's not what they do for, for any future one. Because obviously they, Borderlands can do it, and that's considerably less story-based. But it does, it does have a narrative to the game. There's a multiplayer co-op experience in here, which could be stretched over and, you know, various campaigns and leave you moving forward. I mean, something more like, say, Halo 3 ODST. Okay. And Neil, what did you make of Mass Effect 3? Major points of engagement, disengagement. I seem to remember you uh, uh, had issues with it last time we uh, we spoke. Issues? <laughs> I'm the one that the people that really freaking hate that original ending. I still to this day think it is a terrible, terrible, poorly written ending. And I'm much, much happy with the extended cut. And I seem to now be in the minority of people who think this. Uh, I played through this game twice now. I played it once when it came out. And once for this show, uh, I play uh, the once for the show is actually quite a few months back now because after we finished recording the Mass Effect 2 podcast, mm-hmm. I was literally playing Mass Effect 3 because I had to. I was so engaged. I, the engaging thing for Mass Effect is the universe, the, the world that was built around these characters, around these races. The history is so wonderful and rich and deep that it's a pure joy to be lost in. And that is a major engagement factor. And then you factor in these wonderful characters that you, you get to, to partner up with and learn about and enjoy. That is what keeps me coming back for more and more. And I will say that I think my second playthrough got to me more than my first. I think possibly the problem with the first playthrough is, of course, just getting the game. You want to finish it so no one can spoil it for you. Whereas the second time round. I'm playing it for myself. I know what's happening. I know how it's going to go for the most part because I hadn't played it through with the extended cut. And, you know, getting to experience it all again and take your time and letting it really sink in, uh, savouring it like a fine wine. I know that sounds really snobbish of me, but it's the only way I can think of putting it. This time around, I also had all the DLC. So I had Javik, uh, I had Leviathan, uh, and I had the Citadel. Was there another piece? Uh, Omega? Omega. And Omega. So I had all the pieces. With the DLC this time around, it made a, again, made a huge difference. Um, I really don't like Javik. I think he's, I think he was, fa- he comes across as far too much fan service for my liking. Uh, I can see why some people like him and then he has interesting story beats, but on the whole, I think he's forgettable. Leviathan could have been interesting, but was a little short. Omega is more combat, which, uh, if you like the combat, I suppose you're fine, but if, if, if you started to find the combat a slog, it was really hard going. Like I said, I know that both you and Sharon had a, tr- had real difficulty getting through the combat, because I know, remember talking to Duplex, you said you were struggling with it. Yeah. But what did it for me, and what got me through, was the Citadel DLC. Because I found, on a personal level, a lot of the stuff that I thought was missing from 3 as it was, was in the Citadel and was put back. And not only that, it was turned up to 11, but in a good way. It's a, a lot, But I'm sure we'll talk about the DLC later, so we'll talk about it then. And this, again, is one of the few games that has made me cry. 
no holding back. Uh, the extended cut had me bawling my eyes out in one part. Um, one of the parts isn't different, which is the conversation you have with Garris uh, in London when you have that talk about being in the bar. Mm. Uh, you've got that. You you that really really tugs at your heartstrings, and that had me <clears throat> that had me tearing up. Um, but there's throughout my playthrough for digital Gonzo shows, I decided to go with the romance with Liara, and I'd really been enjoying it. There were some really wonderful moments, both in one, in two, and then in this. And one of the extended cuts. Uh, parts shows you I for my final assault I took Liara with me and one of the things they did in the extended cut is explain why they're not where your crew members went and whatnot. when you do the charge to the teleport Liara gets injured so Shepard my femme Shep calls in the Normandy to pull her out because she's injured and you do that and there's this and this got me and it gets me now even thinking about it is where I think it is probably the first time or there's just the second time Shepard says to her, I love you. And you know, I think that's, I don't know whether it was brought on by the fact you know how this is ending. That just got me and I bawled. I was crying at that because this sort of, this lovely romance that you'd seen grow from the first game and, and go in the second and come back in the third. And just having that moment, that, that emotional connection to those two characters and that that situation and having that I love you there and just knowing what was going to happen just did it for me and I was bawling and I think that's one of the things I really love about this game is it, it allowed me to have this emotional connection to these characters the point where it had me bawling my eyes out was there anything you could really put your finger on that bugged you about the uh, original ending? The original ending to me was just a, a hell of a lot of lack of context and things coming just out of nowhere, like the Star Child all of a sudden. There seemed to be no context for that. But once you have Leviathan and this extended cut, a lot of it more makes ah. sense. Uh, ah. That is that is the biggest problem I find with the, the, un, uh, the ending as it originally was. It felt... Too much was unexplained. Too many. Too much was unanswered. And just by filling in small, all it proved, all the extended cut is really just filling in little gaps. And all of a sudden, that ending makes a heck of a lot more sense because I think one of the original outcries, and I know a lot of people got. I know there was a backlash against the backlash, but what I think a lot of it a comes, front lash. <laughs> what I think a lot of it comes down to, and what a lot of people got upset was the way that the original ending goes with, it gives you a sense that you're never returning to this universe, ever. Not just the Shepherd part, but you ne- you're never going to go back to it's this. The mass relays. The mass relays and everything yeah. gone. You're not going back to this world. It, it's it, done. It's finished. Yeah. And I think that hurt people because, like I said, these characters give you such an emotional connection that to, to have that feel like it was taken away from you upset people. Mm. Now, maybe they could have handled it better, yes, but... I think that's probably where a lot of that that anger and upset came from, was the fact yeah. that it felt like you were taking this world away from us. And it's kind of funny, but for Bioware, that's a good thing, because that just proves what a fantastic world they've built yeah. for us to play in. I never thought you're taking this world away from us forever, because, you know, one of the biggest video game launches in history, uh, the the way the games... <laughs> Uh, industry, I can't think of a single game that's had that kind of uh, business, and then there was never any game afterwards set in that universe. Anyone? 
I think they probably... I mean, nowadays, probably not. But back in the day, yes. Look how long fans have been screaming for a KOTOR 3. Yeah, you could you could easily argue that uh, the Old Republic is the KOTOR 3 no, that we've been asking it for. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... It's, 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 that. Uh, but a lot of people who are like, we need a KOTOR 3! Here you go. That's not what we meant! <laughs> and exactly. yeah, I, I, I've said before, didn't I, uh, that if I could have anything, it would be uh, Mass Effect-style Star Wars done with the, the Mass Effect 2 engine. That'd be awesome. Or 3 engine, I suppose. There's no point going backwards. Or four. Well, it's, frost, it's the Frostbite four engine. That's no, Frostbite three engine next. So, yeah. Oh. options. Uh, this time I played uh, Shepard Renegade because uh, I was just getting more and more pissed off with having to uh, play the same uh, same game again after all of this Mass Effect and so I reflected that in Shepard being a very, very short-tempered and answering everything uh, in, a, in a, a, a mean way. And it wasn't until I got to, say, the middle that I started taking genuine different options and it's like, right, well I wonder what happens if I do this. So here's the thing. Uh, on Tachanka, when uh, I wouldn't dream normally of listening to the Solarian Counselor, uh, I said, yeah, all right, I'll, sacrifice, I'll, I'll sabotage the Genophage. And I thought, what's this going to be like? And you're given chance, chance after chance to not sabotage it and to mention the sabotage plot. And you've got to really button your lip and go, nope, going to carry on with this. And because Morden died at the end of Mass Effect 2, I had this other Solarian saying, nope, I'm going to carry on doing it. And you have to shoot them in the back. Because whether it's Morden or this, this other Solarian, they're going, I've got to carry on with this. If you have to shoot me, then you shoot me. But I have to cure this genophage. And then you go out and uh, Rex and uh, the, the and Eve are all sort of dancing in the snowflakes of pretend genophage cure and going, it's over. And you're like, no, it's not. And I felt terrible and gutted inside. And I thought, this is awful. I suppose I could argue it's for the common good that, you know, we've now got the help of the Salarians and the Krogan. But it just, it feels so deeply wrong to do this. And that wasn't the worst bit. And I don't know if you guys know this. The worst bit is after the assault on the Citadel, you go back to the Normandy. But before you can get in, Rex is at the door. And he just sort of walks in on on you before you can get get in and says, Shepard, Rex, what are you doing? I know what you did. We can provide you our very best scientists to build the Crucible and the full support of our fleets. If I sabotage the cure. Think about it, Commander. The choice is yours. Where did you get that? 
Morden wasn't my only source in STG. Or did you think I was as dumb as my brother, Reeve? What have you done? Why would I betray you, Rex? I've known you a long time. It's you and me, taking on the galaxy together. But words aren't going to cut it this time, Shepard. I will honor our friendship, though, by shooting you in the head and making it quick! And before you die, I want you to know I'm calling off our support for Earth. If my people go extinct, so do yours. It doesn't have to be this way, Rex. It should have been this way back on Vermeer. But I made the mistake of trusting you, believing you were my friend. And you have the option to basically either shoot Rex yourself, or let C-Sec do it. And Rex dies. I know... what you... did. And it's like, however bad you felt at the big, in the first Mass Effect, uh, during the Genophage argument, I felt 1,000 times worse here. Because I had fucked the Krogan, the galaxy, and the most brave, noble warrior I had met in that game. That and I f- fucking died inside. And so when my shepherd straightened up, I think it's Bailey says something along the lines of, he might be too big for a regular coffin, we may have to space him. And I thought, yep, that's right, just flush his corpse out into space. That wasn't the worst. <laughs> it gets, really? well, I think it's talk Tully. Yeah. Uh, There's one I know about Tully, if you get that wrong, which is, yeah, it is worse than that. Yeah. You can stop Legion from uploading the Reaper program, but when you start to say, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you here, he's like, no, yeah, because if you, if you stop us, then the Quarian fleet will destroy us. So you just let it happen. And then he says, right, now we will destroy the Quarian fleet. And you're like, no, 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 wait a second. Could you just, like, upload the Reaper code but not destroy the quarry and fleet but you can only obviously make that happen if you've got a, a high enough paragon or do you, can you also do it with a high enough renegade I could I not tell you you could threaten the two species into it or just be badass enough for them to go okay packs shall we the quarians are fight valiantly but are utterly destroyed by the geth and their ships rain down upon ranach and tali watches these falling stars sobbing and then she takes off her mask to stare at the sunrise turns around and falls backwards off the cliffs just saying I'm sorry to Shepard and you run forward and press the the paragon button to save her and it's not in time you can't save her and Tali dies because you had to let the geth live this is Captain Cardano And the Geth live, and they join your cause, but the Quarians die. I thought, nothing is fucking worth this. And my shepherd was dead inside at this point. 
she was just this walking corpse just waiting for her uh, end and so well. it felt like a mercy at the, at the end of this game and that is the most wretched I've ever felt in a game. For all the um, Renegade option type games where you get to choose between Paragon and Renegade or um, Hero and Villain or whatever in Fable and KOTOR, it just, this felt the worst, even relative to all the previous Mass Effects. Yeah, because I mean, you were betraying friends. I, I think in this one it brings home the fact that Renegade really is that choice. It's not the badass action movie choice like it yeah. sort of is in some of the scenes in Mass Effect 2. No, most notably the talking Krogan and the gas tank. Yeah. Whereas this is, this is, this is the Renegade choice and your actions have these consequences and mm. you've got to live with them. But even if you take the Paragon route, uh, if you don't sabotage the Genophage, you at least you know, the Solarians won't help you, but, you know, fuck them. It's just, you, you go off and be cowards elsewhere, that's fine, but at least they they live and be cowards. And, the you know, you will be forever remembered as a legend among the uh, the Krogan. Uh, you, you did your best there, but ultimately when it came down to it, there was too much politics involved. Um, and then when it's the Geth versus the Quarians, I felt terrible. It felt wrong that the Geth were killed by the Quarians. But Legion dies either way, and mm-hmm. I never felt attached to Legion like I did to Tali. And oh. Legion doesn't cry. <laughs> and Legion... You know there is like a third option there, right? Yeah, I know, of course, yeah, but I've never witnessed never it because I never it. had enough Paragon because I always balanced it, and I was always like mostly uh... Paragon with a little bit of Renegade. Next time, I am going goody two-shoes route because I cannot watch that again. The funny thing is, it's... I don't see the Paragon as actually goody, uh, a goody goody two shoes because it's not. No, it's 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 prize and cooperation above all other things, and it's uh, it's fantastic. But there are just some times when you just want to say "fuck you" to people, and you can't because you're too, being too nice, <laughs> and you can't headbutt the Krogan anymore. Oh, you can. Yeah, take it you from can. You, you can. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to risk it just in case I'm one point down. Remember the um, issue with uh, saving Tali at the um, uh, the, the hearing, and it's like I was just a few points away, and it's like if I hadn't headbutted that Krogan, I've never failed that ever. Well, I did the first couple of times. I think me and you have the same experience, Neil. Where we've always been able to pass the major stuff. Yeah, I don't know what that. I don't think that is tracks for us. So it's just it's, it's an odd one, really. Again, You're just that good inherently, anyway, aren't you? <laughs> That's debatable. Dude, you've you've seen me play a dwarf. I am that good. Matt Ramsey and Sharon Shaw of Do Try This at Home and Lily Scaldaferi of Extra Credits. Okay, so Matt, your experience playing Mass Effect 3. First time, second time, any all points in between? Uh, first time, um, I had been looking forward to this game more than probably any other game I've ever looked forward to. Uh, and 
right from the off, I was I was very happy because I really I was I was thoroughly enjoying it. After a while, um, I, it just it, I realised it wasn't as good as Mass Effect Two. Um, it just you know, that just uh, occurred to me as, as you the more you play it, the more you you realise that the quality of the writing just isn't quite up there. But that's not really. Uh, a, a, an unfair comparison to make but I was still enjoying it very much and I enjoyed it I don't know what 40 odd hours of it I played and I got to the end and to be honest I it wasn't the, the greatest ending to a game ever no but I really can't see what everyone was pissing and moaning about so much what the fuck did they expect to happen how do you end a trilogy like Mass Effect without leaving everyone feeling a little bit disappointed or a lot disappointed it's just I don't I don't know what people want from from the end of a game. It was I mean, what more could you possibly expect to get from that? And so I was livid with the people who was going me me me. I want my money back because they're dicks for it. I absolutely fucking hated those people. If someone wanted to say I was disappointed with the ending of Mass Effect Three because blah 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 blah, then fair enough. But people just going oh no, this is terrible. I've, I've been betrayed. You haven't been betrayed at all. You just been a, a sucky experience on a video game uh, and, and to be honest that completely spoiled the whole thing for me in, in a way I just kind of really soured my view not of, of the game I, it didn't make me think the games are terrible it just kind of soured me a little bit on the on unified the experience yeah just the fact that that, that did suffer that yeah I just I can say that without uh, bias on any level yeah, I, I look. I look. You know, for a while afterwards, I, I, I thought back on 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 you know Mass Effect, and it was like just always a little bit, oh, just a just a slight, almost a melancholy over how uh, how the whole thing had gone down. Because as as Lily said, people were focusing on the last what maybe twenty minutes tops of of the game, and that just ignoring everything that had come before it. I, what do you want? There's plenty of films that have slightly crappy endings, but are brilliant nonetheless. There's plenty of books that have slightly crappy endings, but are brilliant nonetheless. Because the the vast, like, 95% of it is awesome. The fact that some of it is not awesome does not make a good case for you to start moaning about things, you know. And it was just the the, the bitter way people were talking about it as though they had actually been betrayed I've been betrayed by people in real proper ways and believe me if you think you've been betrayed by video game developers not writing your perfect ending you have not done anywhere near enough stuff you betrayal is such a bollocks word for this and it really pissed me off uh, so yeah I, I didn't um, uh, yeah I just kind of sailed me on the whole thing slightly I just didn't really want to read any of the books or any of the comics or anything for a while after that either uh, but obviously playing it through again for this uh, and, and that obviously that had all faded I knew what was going to happen at the end of it I, all I, I, I just needed to see the extended uh, cut and see what changes they'd made but um, I was yeah I, I enjoyed it. it it wasn't it's not as good as Mass Effect 2 really is, is my, my basic capsule review but it's still very good uh, I don't really you know I, I can't I can't say it more simply than that. It, it's it's not as good as Mass Effect 2, but not much is as good as Mass Effect 2. So it's not really, as I say, it's an unfair comparison to make. The, you can tell that, that Drew Kupishin is missing. Um, I don't know how you pronounce his surname, so I apologise if I got that wrong. Because uh, the, the first two games, really, the writing was just phenomenal. And in the third game, it, just, it seemed a little 
directionless at times. It kind of they couldn't quite make up the mind. I'm guessing it was several people that wrote it. It seemed like it was uh, the result of, of uh, a group rather than uh, one person in, in charge. Maybe I don't know, but um, yeah, it just didn't seem to quite have the the, the focus that the the first two games had. But uh, yeah, I still enjoyed it. I still enjoyed playing it an awful lot, and the. Uh, adding the DLC I played all the DLC through uh, this time and that was all that was all pretty damn good actually because the first game had rubbish DLC it really did uh, and I was the second one had some great DLC and I wasn't sure what to expect from this one but they, they did a damn fine job with the DLC which I believe we're talking about later yeah I think also to just tack on to what you're saying like how people were complaining about the ending and uh, how they just weren't satisfied. Um, one of the creators of uh, uh, what's his name, Casey Hudson, he was talking about how when they were making the ending, they really wanted to. They didn't want just a sense of closure because they thought that the questions that it raised were more important than just having this is what happened and that's how it ended. You know, the conversations are the the important part. And that's something I completely wholeheartedly agree with. You know, it's, it's more, it's not as, in, it, I'll be honest, they're interesting. <laughs> well, actually, okay, I think interesting could work in this case. The world wouldn't be as interesting of a place if we didn't have conversations about what could be. However, there is a certain way about, way of going about those conversations. Oh, absolutely. Certain responsibility associated with the conversation having. Well, have a conversation. <coughs> yeah. Don't well, just scream the into the internet. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I mean. What a, there, there's a drastic difference between conversation and complaining. Yes, um, that's the issue you know, I they, had. You have to have a respectful conversation, and more importantly, you have to be listening as well. If you're just screaming, you're not listening anymore. Sharon, you likened this to uh, somebody saying that they'd just had a night of fantastic sex, but at the end they didn't come. <laughs> and then going on and on and on about this second and a half that they were missing. Yes, I did. I mean, that's a good I, I second and a half, it, and, and you do occasionally feel its absence, but... Um, I, um, it, that's, that's, you know, if... if <laughs> for the people who didn't enjoy what happened at the end you know for, for a lot of people myself included that would have been a perfectly satisfactory orgasm but actually for some people, it just wasn't. this i i am just going to let turn you loose on this one when you played it somehow i had neglected and this wasn't an intentional thing i thought i'd already done it i had neglected to install the uh material that would give you the extended ending i thought what we were watching was the extended ending i went Exactly the same. Okay. <laughs> Maybe there was a few bits here and there, and the, you you got the synthesis ending, which was different to mine, um, because I, I didn't have the option for synthesis originally. Then we sat down and watched all of the extended endings back to back on YouTube. You can watch it. it's like forty minutes uh, all told, including the fourth ending where you shoot this. <laughs> you shoot. I did that by accident. In the head. Oh man. Um, I did that because so like. So actually, after I played Mass Effect 3 for the first time, I did go back and I played the other... Uh, well, I only had two options. I didn't get the third option because I apparently messed up. Um, but I went back and I played the other one. And then I watched a bunch of reviews and I saw somebody, you know, kind of dicking around and shooting at the Catalyst. And I thought, 
And after, oh, yeah, okay, now I remember. Um, I went back and played it again because the DLC had come out. Yeah. With the extended ending. So I went to go play it, and I was just not even, I didn't even really mean anything by it. I was just waiting for the cutscene to continue. And it goes, so, so be it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, like, oh shit. No, no, don't, don't make it so. And then you get that ending, which was entirely made for the uh, detractors, for the haters. Absolutely. For the and ones who wish to be defiant and to to not make those choices. Yeah. Um, I thought it was so good. It so anyway, so we, we sat and watched these 40 minutes uh, of additional material. And Sharon, I just want to turn you loose on this because you had very strong reactions to what they'd done, especially to the Renegade ending. Yes. Yes, I did. Um, the right, the the original ending, as the the snippet that is going to be in this podcast will show, I thought was amazing. I loved it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It, it made me think. It made me cry. It made me have all sorts of emotional reactions that that I thought were absolutely wonderful. Um, when one of the things that I would have possibly called some of the complainers on um, was their argument and again this is this is not everybody and it's also worth bearing in mind that of the people who were complaining they weren't all complaining about the same things um, which there is, is a gray reason, scale in the middle absolutely which is another reason why i think whoever made the decision to go back and change things whether it was bioware or whether it was ea uh, i i think that was a mistake because you can't tick everybody's box all the time you just can't and if you try you end up compromising what you wanted to do in the first place and i found that very frustrating that they had tried to do that but i mean i'll come to that in a minute in terms of what they actually changed but one of the main complaints that that i found out about later because i didn't really look in detail at, at the nature of what people have been saying until after I'd, I'd finished it was we wanted our choices earlier in the game to affect what happened at the end. And it did because if you'd made certain decisions and if you'd played certain things in certain ways, you didn't get the synthesis option. That is called your actions having an impact on the end of the game. You might not like it, but that's what happens sometimes. You make decisions and it means you remove certain choices from your outcome at the end. You're going to have to suck it up and live with that. And that, again, I, I liked the fact that they had made that have an impact. And, and it, it, I would have hated not having that synthesis option before that turned up because there is a moment where you've only got the first two. And I, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, so I'd, I'd, probably have got to the end of it and gone that was awful that 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 was the choice that i had and that there was no for me there there would have been no positive outcome had i not had that but i would have accepted that that meant decisions i'd made earlier on in the game had resulted in me not having that choice you have to earn it absolutely um and then watching the additional material and, and what they'd changed and what they'd added uh, it plays the the video that we watched plays the renegade ending through first, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I didn't really technically. No, hang on. It plays the uh, oh no, it plays the shoot the catalyst ending defiant first, ending through yes, first. Yes, which I actually thought was quite an interesting insert. 
I didn't think the game needed it, but I thought, yeah, okay, that, that does add something to it. To anybody who wants to be shitty about it, there you go, you're all dead. You've, basically, you're fucked up, do it all again. <laughs> Which is actually, I thought, quite smart. Um, but then the, uh, the. Kind of like the, the entire universe only had one life and you got to the end of the game and you yeah, fell in a pit. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, but, but that added to the feeling of consequence. Yeah. So that, I was fine with. There was real world ramifications of that though, which Indeed. makes it literally the real world blew up. Um, but the, the destroy ending, the red ending, if you will, um, <sighs> one, I thought they explained too much. And, it, and I've, I've said this in a tweet. I don't like at this point being critical about what Bioware decided to add. They made their choices and just the same as I would not rip into them for the choices they made in the first place, I don't think it's fair to rip into them for the choices that they made for the second pass. But the fact that it was done in order to satisfy what certain vocal minorities had insisted they wanted makes me cross because it was it was all it seemed to me to be all the sorts of things that when i watch a film like titanic for example which having assessed later in life or armageddon or something like that yeah uh, you know there's there's positive things about them and they they fit with what they're meant to do and there's you know rousing moments where you're supposed to well up and, and emotionally respond but there's too much explaining and too much closure and too much, um, you know, this this whole thing about, oh, we, we want to see what happens to all the individual races at the end. We want to see the Turians, you know, shaking their machine guns in victory and all the rest of it. And we want to see the humans uh, smacking each other on the back and say, yeah, we did good. Let's, you know, go and have a pint in the only remaining pub in London um, and, and things like that. Why do you need that? What, what, what? in you requires that to go yes that story's now finished It made me annoyed at the people who wanted more um, obvious resolution because you can infer whatever you want from the original set of endings. You can fill in all the blanks that you possibly have space for in your imagination. But once they've put it down, I I can't even call it on celluloid, once they've you know, made it firm, this is what happened afterwards, all of those possibilities just fizzle away. And and I think that actually takes something away from it. And the, the reason that the um, the Renegade ending annoyed me the most, um, because the, all of them had that, as because obviously a lot of the scenes that they inserted were very similar and, and were, were giving the same kind of resolution. They had uh, the most instances of this is what happened to the other characters and the other races in the Renegade ending. They even yes. showed Zaid on a beach 
kicking back. Yeah, but, the but least there was this there was lovable this sense character in the entire of, game, the most yeah. warlike and cold. There was this sense of um, you know, here is the glory of war. Yes, we sacrificed, but look at what we've achieved and isn't victory marvellous and you know what? Fuck off. I and hate the, that. That whole glory of war mentality winds the shit out of me. It really does. The blue um, sky coming through the clouds at the end when the reapers go away, it's like, yes, now war is over. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> There, there seems to be that. a sense of, you know, what, what about our children? <laughs> I'll be dead by then. Doesn't matter. Yeah, who cares? And the thing that this brought tears of rage to my eyes when you pointed it out, and it hadn't occurred to me until you said it, you don't see Edie die. You have made a choice that means Edie, who with me, again, she went on most of my away missions with me. She, I was really close to her. Her whole relationship with Joker was key to my uh, engaging with this story. You kill her. Joker gets out of the Normandy and just goes over the planet. He should be in tears. He should be a wreck crying over the motionless corpse of Edie. But but no, you you don't have to deal with that consequence. No, we're, we're just going to move on from that. Well, she, her name goes on the memory board at the end. That's it. But, but you don't it. even have to look at it. No. It's no just a second and gone. It was a very numb, irresponsible ending. Evil is punished. Yes. Good survives. Indeed. And I think that's why like, Hulk pretty much put it best, Hulk put it best when um, he said it's more important to make a statement than just to satisfy everybody. To indulge. Yeah. Because, yeah, because it's just, then it's just an indulgence and you're not learning anything. And it's, and that's what makes me really just sad more than anything else. Sharon, any more on that one to do with the uh, extended ending or, uh... Um, I don't oh, think you, you notice, by the way, that they've got everyone's names except for when, uh, Liara's holding Commander Shepard. It's like, what was yeah. Shepard's first name? <laughs> it's Commander. Commander. <laughs> We had the plaque made. It's too late now to make it again. I'm almost yeah. upset about that because my, my shepherd's name, and I completely forgot about it until, I, I, actually, pretty much until that moment. Was um, it Leopard Shepherd? No, 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 no. It was Dr. Brock Shepherd. Oh. <laughs> it's just like, because, nice. yeah, because I was watching Venture Bros at the time when I made. Uh, that's, see, that's I'm Shepard. It's, it's in text. It's it's just a graphic. Okay, you guys all go to Normandy. You, you could have inserted There's, a first oh, name there quite good. easily. You know, your your well, name you have goes to put in your in name in, don't you? Yeah, you but put a first name in. Yeah. Well, no, it's a cutscene. It, it doesn't really have enough time for. A, it, it, they can't get the name onto that. They can get the name yeah. onto like they, they can could be right four that. whole endings, and they haven't got time to put in one panel. Oh, right, well, this is like she puts up a, th- a thing and she sort of smooths it down. You get the shepherd bit, and then it sort of pans back, and then the camera changes ever so slightly. Like you know, like Brock Sampson Shepherd. <laughs> sorry, Doc Brock Shepherd. Yeah, yeah, Brock Sampson didn't fit. No, sorry. What else? Uh, added yeah, to- I mean the the issues that I have with the the um, control ending. Um, and the uh, the synthesis ending um, were are more or less the same in terms of the the inserted footage and the the need that people seem to have to have everything sort of nice and, and neatly resolved. I have a question. Uh, but again, it it just I think what frustrated me the most was just that it took away all the inference, anything that you could have molded out of the original ending yourself. They kind of hammered nails through it. I have a question. How much is the right amount of ending? 
for anything. Because if you remember, Return of the King, there were people bitching, oh, I had an ending, and then another ending, and then another ending, and then another ending. And then there were other people on the other side of the fence going, they didn't have the scouring of the Shire! I needed more! When do you get exactly the right amount of ending? See, that, again, just adds to the theory, you cannot ever satisfy everybody. Stop trying. Just satisfy yourselves. All over the camera. Well, indeed. But, you know, you're the creator. You're the artist. You do what you want to do and accept the consequences if people don't like that. Yeah, but unfortunately artists, especially movie makers, are beholden to studios who have no interest, by and large, in making art. They uh, Studios want to make a product, and from the sounds of it, audiences want to receive a product. Yes, well, you know how I feel about capitalism. This is not the podcast for it. But that doesn't, that, that's just something you can say when sort of, yes, well, that doesn't matter to me. But it's the way things are. I'm not trying to get you to accept it. It is just it's something we important. need to push through like crazy. Because um, there are aspects of art creeping into more and more aspects of popular culture. It, it, it legitimizes things that would have been sneered at mere, you know, years ago and things that still are sneered at. To get beyond the sneering, uncompromising needs to be the way. Yeah, you know, and, and it's funny because it's, it's not like people working on these games are like they want to make these artistic decisions and they want to say something um but like i said before it's a lot of just executive bullshit that you have to jump the hoops through and when we were at pax a few weeks ago we had there was a good chunk of bioware people who were fans of extra credits and there was uh, one of the artists came up to me and he was talking to me he um and he was saying how much he really wants the game's art to be better in terms of respectful art towards women because he has a daughter now and now he really wants he wants to set a good example um he doesn't want her going through all of this you know (laughs) like just this image bullshit that everybody else is going through and so like and i i was so humbled to see that from so many people and that's just one example um you know it's but you know alex is right it is unfortunately a business and these are the things that happen and when I don't, I don't know if it's EA's fault or Bioware's fault as to the decision of adding more and trying to answer more questions. But after reading up on what the original designer's vision was, they didn't want to do that at all. Like they, they really liked leaving it up to interpretation. And unfortunately, money speaks louder than art. Well, so. I have great respect for them for that. And, and, frankly too many money people who want giant spiders and polar bear fights <laughs> well, what oh. happened at the end of inception people people were sort of oh, what, what do you think that ending means and they discussed it they no one fucking demanded yeah. that christopher nolan go back and say was it a dream or not i yeah like but like that's yeah that's a very good point like i don't i don't know well we didn't invest 500 hours in in inception yeah but did it <laughs> yeah, but and and again, Inception is also one of those rarities of this is an amazing piece of work that got a very big budget. 
Um, Although there is a rather extended Call of Duty style shooting sequence, which could lift right out with no damage to the film itself. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect by any means. Yeah. But we'll be talking about know. it at some point uh, on the uh, Gonzo podcast. Although my reason for liking that segment is that anything that gives us more Killian, Killian Murphy, Murphy is positive for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay. Um, we'll be talking more next week about. Um, Fan feedback, and uh, it, this goes back a long, long way. It is by no means a new thing. It is, however, a constantly changing thing. And I would like to reiterate at this point to anyone still listening who has found what we've been saying very, very objectionable and feels personally slighted by it, I completely understand the grayscale. When I said this was a civil war, it is not anywhere like as simple as the reds and the blues. What it actually is, is... A thousand people screaming on the left and a thousand people screaming on the right and everyone else is caught in the crossfire and I want to hear as much feedback on this as possible. But subdividing ourselves up into these little sort of cliques and clubs and screaming on one side and the other and that actually affecting entertainment and that actually affecting art is a big deal. That is why we are devoting an entire podcast to it next week. So be back for that one. Okay, let's talk briefly about the new characters introduced in Mass Effect 3, which are actually fairly thin on the ground. Uh, James Vega first, uh, playing the, the muscle. What did you make of this guy? Um. Um, it was alright, I suppose. <laughs> Brilliant. He's <laughs> podcast worthy. Pretty much. There's not a lot, there's not a lot more to him. It was, it was entertaining enough to talk to, I suppose, but it just, I don't know, there wasn't much to him. It just, was just there. It's not like he had uh, an awful lot to say, really. Do you have um, female or male shepherd, Matt? Male. Uh, Lily, were you a female shepherd? Uh, I, well, okay. My original shepherd that I carried from one, two, and three was male, uh-huh. and then I played. I know. I regret that decision. Um, but uh, I played a few other various ones in two and three that were all female because it was just better. <laughs> Did you talk to James much as Femme Shep? Not really. Okay. I mean, I, I kind of, I talked to him because I talked to everybody. Because I just, that's just, I always want to talk to my crewmates. But I was never really interested to what he had to say. I stop, yeah, I stopped talking to him after a while because he he kept hitting on me and he wouldn't stop. <laughs> and it just got really annoying after a while. I mean, at least it, it, it was a similar sort of thing as with Kaiden in the first game. But at least he eventually got the message that you weren't interested, if, if you weren't interested, assuming that you didn't follow him as a, a, a romantic pursuit. Um, he would eventually give up and stop flirting and Vega just would never quit and I'm sure he thought he was just being friendly but the Lola thing wore thin pretty fast you can be quite sharp with him and say enough it's Commander Shepard yeah it was just awkward when he starts calling you Lola it's like what, what? no 
That's that's not my name. I'm your commanding officer. <laughs> we can't have pet names for our commanding yeah. officers. That's, that's yeah. Captain Lola to you. <laughs> captain? Did you just demote yourself? Well, no, it, she's his captain. I know she's her rank is commander, but All she right. is his captain. Okay, fair enough. So nothing more to James Vega. Yeah, just, that seems to be his theme. Big butch it's, guy. I mean, I never took him down on away teams at all. Yeah. You can't take him anywhere. Kind <laughs> of, Not really. <laughs> it was kind of, it was just a redundant thing for me because I, play I played as a soldier and I had Ashley along. So I've got already got two pure soldiers available anyway. So having another one, it's just, I, there was nothing I could do with the guy because he wasn't particularly... I mean, bear in mind, I could have spent my time talking to other people, and therefore I did, because that was always more rewarding. So, I just, after a while, I thought, this is just kind of pointless. I, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem wandering around the, uh, the Normandy and talking to, to the crew, but, uh, I've only got so much, so many hours in the day, I have to draw the line somewhere. And it was at, uh, poor old James got the, got the boot on that one. Um, did anyone else, when you did your first playthrough, had you lost either Tali or Garrus in Mass Effect 2? No. Not in two, no. Sharon? No. No. So, uh, but I would imagine people unlucky enough to have actually suffered that, uh, or just that they didn't do their loyalty quests, or didn't do them right, uh, would have felt the party pretty sparse. Especially if they didn't have uh, Javik as well. It seems like a real thinning out of the uh, party from moving on from Mass Effect 2. Yeah. Well, I mean, with Vega, I know, because when I was playing as, as Male Shepherd, um, he's He's asking for advice, and it seems like they're trying to build some sort of, I don't want to say father figure for Vega. Like you as a father figure for Vega. Brother figure? Brother figure. Yeah, I guess older brother figure would probably do better. Is it kind of dude bro? Uh, not really. Sort. I mean, I got more of a dude bro vibe from Garrus and Shepard than anybody else. But you never felt like you were really his buddy, but you felt like he was looking up to you as a soldier. So there was that dynamic when you were playing male Shep, but when you're playing female Shep, it just kind of felt like you wanted to get into your pants, and that was about it. Not the least bit professional, Vega. <laughs> Try yeah. harder next time. Yeah, and, that's, and that was the thing, too. I was like, how the hell did you end up on the ship if you're acting like that? <laughs> like, I feel question. like that would have come up in some interview at some point somewhere. Like, it's kind of creepy. Like, yeah. Maybe we shouldn't. He's not so professional. He is a bit... Rapey. Rapey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who else got Javik? Uh, I didn't, but I watched really the like DLC. Um, okay, right. One at a time. Sorry. Matt? <laughs> I did, yeah. Didn't use him. Okay. Uh, uh, Leela? Lili? Lola? <laughs> Lola? <laughs> Lilu. Uh, Lili. Um, I didn't, I didn't get the DLC, mm -hmm. so I never had him in my games, but I, I went and I watched the videos online. I know that's kind of a cheat way of doing it. I thought he was interesting, actually. Uh, oh, hang on. Interesting is a word we're not allowed to use anymore on this. Hang on. Oh, Lily's okay. allowed to use it, just because we're not allowed to no, use it. No, 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 but I, I, I may as well say it right now. And I'm not saying you were doing this consciously. Interesting is a word we all use when we don't want to go into more depth. I, I can see that. Think of a better word or collection of words to describe Javik. Uh, he was informative on past... Uh, how should I put this? I guess just kind of uncovering what we actually build up in our minds of what we might look up to. Mm -hmm. Because 
whenever we talked about the Protheans, it always felt like they were this uh, godlike race that had this perfect society almost. And um, well, maybe perfect isn't exactly a great word, but when you met him, he was just a soldier and they were pretty ruthless. <laughs> so when you talk to him more and more and he talks about uh, just like the decisions that they had to make and I, I can't really think I exactly. feel like this is initiation right. It's like, right, now we're trying to find a, get it to find a synonym for interesting. Yeah. <laughs> in less than a thousand words. Oh god. No, no, I get exactly what you mean. As yeah. in they effectively, especially to the Asari, these guys were our models for God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then uh, we beat one and it just kind of shatters the illusion that everybody had for it. I've had several people, Neil specifically mentioned that he really didn't like Javik in terms of personality. Uh I said that I liked him in terms of perspective. Yeah, yeah, I can, I, I agree with that. That fits. I don't think you're really supposed to like him in terms of personality because he did, the point to me, possibly because I, um, uh, played with Liara so much. No pun intended. Sorry, what? Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, took Liara on my away team so much. You got the blue <laughs> That's fever. what I meant to say there. Um, the, I mean, I, I didn't get him until fairly late on in the game, but the fact that she was so obsessed with the Protheans before and now you meet one and he's a bit of a douche. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you can see why. You can see what, what the perspective of, of their race was um, and what they were up against. But the more you find out about why they ended up in that position in the first place, um, I, I don't think he's meant to be likable, put it that way. Yeah. I never felt that when I was talking to him, I was ripped off in his approach. Like, mm. I, I felt like how they... Uh, they designed his character was completely justified. Um, it it seemed reasonable across the board to me. It was unfortunate, but it seemed reasonable. Uh, if you uh, keep talking to him and you keep checking out on the ship after Thessia, considering what she's just gone through, which must be similar to Spock in the uh, uh, recent Star Trek movie, uh, she attacks him. Because she's just seen her planet die, and also she's seen God brought back to life, and it's him. Mm-hmm. So she freaks out. Any more on Javik? I, I didn't actually see uh, Liara um, uh, attack him, because uh, I didn't have him the first time through, and the second time I wasn't talking to anyone. I was having a horrible, hollow experience that I've talked about elsewhere in the uh, podcast. My issue yeah. with Javik, I didn't have a problem with the, the way he looked particularly, um, the fact that he could speak same language was somewhat convenient um, <laughs> considering how very long ago uh, he, he existed and that all sentient life had been destroyed since then um, my, my biggest issue with it was a narrative one which is the fact that he shouldn't have been on the Normandy at all there is yeah. absolutely no way on earth that denizens of the uh, of the galaxy would ever have allowed him anywhere outside a, a room with a light deep underground <laughs> while they basically interrogate him for every bit of information they could possibly get. Yeah. He's, the, he's the last remaining survivor of a, a ancient civilization that's been through this once. They're not just going to leave him to jaunt off with uh, Commander Shepard on these incredibly dangerous missions where he could easily die. Yeah. It just yeah. made no sense to me at all. And as I didn't I use him, it, it kind of seemed pointless. Yeah, you know, they could have uh, still done the whole, the, the, the whole DLC thing and then just had him as like a... You know, uh, an intelligence asset like so many other intelligence assets, it gives you an extra 10 points towards your uh, galactic redness or something. Mm. And it would have worked just as well from a, a gameplay perspective because, uh, yeah, it just shouldn't have been there at all. 
Yeah, I think um, actually originally he was supposed to be part of the game, and they made him DLC later. They they took him out very late in production, and that's why it was pretty polished for DLC. And I think that might be the reason why, because they felt like it didn't it didn't make sense that he was in the Normandy, but. So they made the N7 one not make sense, but the regular one made sense. So So you can buy nonsense. (laughs) Alex, did we buy him then? No, we didn't. We got an N7 version later. Ah, right, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I did just realise this while editing. There is actually a really good reason why it makes sense for Javik to stay on the Normandy. Anywhere you put him in the galaxy, anywhere the Alliance thinks is safe... Cerberus will immediately invade and Kyleng will run in there with his fucking cheating bastard ninja trick thing and go, aha, now I have the Prothean and then you've got to do a rescue mission. So basically, not having him on the Normandy is a way of generating another tedious assault on the Cerberus base to rescue Javik. Frankly, him being on the Normandy is the safest place in the universe. Okay, so Kyleng... Uh, fucking sucks. I hate this stupid hate cyborg it. ninja guy with his stupid... He should be in a different game. Seriously. Yeah. This guy has no bit... He should be in a Metal Gear Solid game, and even then, he should be killed early on. Oh, man. I can't tell you the satisfaction I felt when I finally stabbed him. Yeah. Like, I think I seriously screamed at my game. Just like, yes! <gasps> yeah. Let's cage. That sounds familiar. Yeah, that, was, that was like my one renegade action. Mm. And yeah. I, it, it came up, and I was like, renegade. And I didn't even have to think. I just thought, no, you know what? I am enough of you! You are dead. I am sick of you, and you are dead. Do you know the reason I hate him the most? It's not because he killed Fane. It's not because he killed Miranda in my second game. It's because when you fight him as a boss, he cheats. Yeah. yeah. You best him, Absolutely. and then he runs away and does that th- that thing that all crappy bosses do, where he goes, ah, you can't hit me, you can't hit me, and then he recharges his shields, and you can just shoot him all day long while he's doing that, and you're never going to do any damage. It's basically like having a playground fight with a kid that's not a real fight, but like a fantasy fight, and you go, what, well, I killed you, and you're like, no, because I've got, like, um, special armor, and it's just, like, I have, I have power to see better into the future, but better than Cal. It's just this, this <laughs> tiny little cheat who's never going to play fair and just like, look, just, I want you out of my game. Then we can carry on, okay? And that yeah. boss fight, when, oh, driving nuts. Both of them. But that one, that second one, oh, Jesus. To clarify, I don't hate him like you hate a really great villain like Khan. Damn you, Khan, you killed Spock. I hate him like a really rubbish villain. Like Hector Hammond in Green Lantern. Damn you, Peter Sarsgaard, you ruined Green Lantern! And he yeah, goads you as well while he's doing it. He what? He goads you. He teases oh, yeah. you. If he was someone who was very serious, like Thane, you'd be like, oh, this guy is somehow res- you respect with. Like, the ninja in the original Metal Gear Solid, there was a respect there, a warrior code. But Kai Leng, it, it just seems like he's, like I say, from a completely different game series. No, you mentioned that. I think that might have been done purposely to kind of compare that to Thane. Maybe. But I still don't think he was... I still that was a goddamn mistake. Yeah. I remember people saying, why wasn't there a boss fight at the end of the game? Why didn't you get to fight um, the elusive man in the man. roots? <laughs> that would have been the worst thing ever! But that, yeah. narratively, the, that 
the elusive man would send this slightly irritating ninja mm. uh, to do his dirty work when he has acres and acres of Cerberus troops that are much better trained, uh, you know, better stocked in terms of weapons, armor, mm. etc. Um, than Kai Leng does not make that much sense. Also, you get a nasty shot when you uh, go up against is it the phantoms that basically allow the, they're allowed a one hit kill on you. Oh, I hate. They get a little too close, and it's like boom. Oh, you're dead. Oh, you're dead. Also, the, 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 this time when I went up against uh, Kai Leng for this second boss fight, he sort of runs towards you in slow motion and you have to react. And because I didn't pause it for the first four times, he basically got into like a grapple with me and then killed me. I'm like, okay, so I get now after defeating him the first time and now playing it a year later that I'm not supposed to grapple with him. I'm just supposed to somehow activate a power or something. What am I supposed to do here? But because if you die that many times, at the beginning of a boss fight and have to have it reloaded over and over again. It doesn't matter what comes afterwards because it's all going to be tedious and annoying. Yeah, so that's like why we have from... casual t- casual difficulty. So yeah. a really badly balanced boss fight there. Yeah, um, well, I, I normally actually... I normally put my difficulty on casual just because I don't have the time <laughs> to deal with the game dragging me out longer. on casual. Yeah, I know. Because it's a one-hit kill. It doesn't matter. That's that, that's my point. Like, I, I seriously hate one-hit kill. Well, I mean, I, in some cases it works. It's all right when in, we do it. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's Commander Shepard. You've seen how awesome she can be. I just, I don't. She's faster I, than a leopard. Yeah. <laughs> Final two uh, major named characters introduced in this uh, game, um, Samantha Trainer and uh, Cortez. I liked them both. Yeah. I quite I like, yeah, Cortez, I quite like talking to him. Yeah, um, I think I talked to him more. Um, yeah, I liked talking to Cortez. Um, I thought there was a lot of... Uh, the the fact that they, they, they just came straight out and sort of pointed the fact that he was gay, but specifically the fact that they just used the word husband there was no life partner or any of that bollocks it was just husband mm. obviously things have moved on a little bit at this point and it just put it right that, that there is no issue with being gay like there often is in the world now and I just thought that was an interesting little insight into the the way that that humans have would have evolved hopefully by the time we get to uh, to yeah. the, the events of this i certainly hope so um i certainly hope that we uh, that uh, we've managed to eradicate homophobia and, and such things if they're listening to us on ancient mp3s recovered from a prothean artifact uh <laughs> jokes on you if there are still homophobes in the human race indeed yeah, yeah um, i was gonna point that out but i know that you already mentioned that on one of your previous podcasts I, about we Matt did mention it in uh, on the uh, just the plot but i think um yeah. i justified it recently as because you've met because the human race has met all these weird aliens with the blue skin and head tails and blinking insectoid eyes suddenly a man kissing a man isn't weird anymore <laughs> It's actually kind of, you know, you, you kind of want to embrace that if you're if you're terrified of all these aliens. It's like, yeah, the humans are for the humans. You kiss that guy. Breaks when you pass out jokes about roofies. Making girls kiss, marry a man. Giant sombrero, show us your titties. Creatine shakes, marry a man. Ring break your... Marry an alien? Never! Yeah, that was a thing, interracial, or interspecies relationships i think would be the next big that's that's kind of heartening 
That means yeah. that slowly racism will be, it'll just be this slow barrier going back and back and back as, as we encounter more weirdness. I, the thing it'll is still though. It'll be racism, but it's just whatever's newest. Yeah, I was yeah. Say, it'll still exist, it's just that they'll move it. The Daily Mail will still be. Oh my god. You can't have an alien play with bomb. a sorry. Oh, what's <laughs> next? It's the thin end of the wedge. What? <laughs> Before next? you know it, we'll be breeding with Krogan. <laughs> You know, I was actually, I was thinking about that because I was rewatching some of the, uh, the cutscenes this morning and, um, I was thinking about the whole first cutscene when they're talking, when they, they meet and they're talking about, oh, the Reapers are coming and they just hit Luna Base. And they're like, oh, we're getting, uh, feedback from, from the UK. And it, it almost puts it into some sort of kind of tiny perspective now because it feels like we have this fighting of nations right now, mm. but in the Mass Effect universe, it's, a div- division of worlds and galaxies. So, you know, people are racist in the world today because this is all we know. But once it blows up to a bigger level, which I think is a big theme in Mass Effect just in general, um, it it kind of it's kind of like this amazing thought. Like, imagine a world where we <clears throat> we consider ourselves as Earthlings, not as American or English or Indian. On that note, I would recommend everyone go to YouTube, go to the Ideas channel, Mm -hmm. and look up Will Space Travel Save Us All? This is a wonderful series of YouTube videos, and I recommend watching every single one of them in one glorious weekend. It will expand your brain. This very much feeds into my theory about the ending. Here's an idea. Space travel might make you a better person. In 1969, we did what was both literally and figuratively one of the most math things we, meaning people, have ever done. We landed on the moon. No way. We went there six times and put a total of 12 men on it. Over the course of three and a half years, the U.S. blasted off to a distant rock for many very complex reasons. To examine the moon's surface and geology, you know, to make sure it's not made of cheese. As a matter of cultural and scientific pride as a growing world power in the mid-20th century. To leave some poop there and, of course, to stick it to the Russians. And then we just kind of stopped. I mean, not going to space, we did just send a robot to Mars. But with the Cold War over, other wars coming and going, a massively shifting cultural landscape and a growing private sector in the sciences, government support for space exploration has recently been at an all-time low. There is, however, a molybdenum lining. Sort of. Remember that growing private sector in the sciences? Well, it includes space travel. Some not-quite-but-almost-Tony-Stark-style geniuses decided that instead of designing a new toothbrush or starting Facebook for dogs, they would rather go to space. And no one argued with them. SpaceX is the first commercial business to launch orbit and land a spacecraft, dock with the space station, and will probably be the first to launch a geostationary satellite. It occurs to me now that these guys better be Iron Man-style geniuses and not Mandarin-style evil geniuses. Otherwise, we're in trouble. The straight talk is that SpaceX, the company started by the guy with his eye in the sky, spends $100 million a year to NASA's $16 billion spent last year alone. So they're pretty far off from being anything more than insane toys for the rich. But it makes you wonder. Cars, trains, air travel, watches, televisions, mobile phones, they were all at one point 
toys for the rich. Sure, nothing so seemingly extravagant as space travel. Just a tiny box in your pocket that has more computing power than all of NASA in 1969. The idea being that once we start adding private economies into the mix, we can expect at some point, a point which might be very far off but existent nonetheless, that normal people will be able to go to space. And I think that this is very important. Here's why. When an astronaut blasts into the distant blue, does a U-turn and looks at their home rock, they are presented, nay, bludgeoned, with perspective. Alan Shepard, the first American in space, said that if somebody'd said before the flight, are you gonna get carried away just staring at the Earth from the moon? I'd have said no, no way. But yet, when I first looked back at the Earth, standing on the moon, I cried. Sorry, I just got that. The first American into space, Alan Shepard. And Rusty Schweikert, the lunar module pilot for Apollo 9, said that when you go around the Earth in an hour and a half, you begin to recognize that your identity is with that whole thing. That makes a change. It comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for man. Whoa. And it's not just these dudes. This sense befalls many space travelers. And in reading their accounts, it's clear that words just barely do it justice. They should have said... Overview effect is the term used to describe the change in behavior experienced by people who have had a romp in the stars. It's characterized by feelings of bliss, profound awareness, and universal interconnectedness, which just sounds awesome, literally. So, but why? Why does overview effect happen? I have a guess. Our view of the world, much like parts of the space program, is political. We view the world through history, relationships, threats, treaties. When we picture it, we imagine borders, countries, and states. Hi. I mean Delaware. And even if you don't, these things are often expressed by infrastructure, signage, culture, everything. This is just how the world. It's the Empire's map all over again. In his book, The Power of Maps, Dennis Wood writes, The map doesn't let us see anything, but it does let us know what others have seen or found out or discovered. The things they learned piled up in layer atop layer so that to study even the simplest looking image is to peer back through ages of cultural acquisition. This is the world to us. Ages of cultural acquisition. And what do you see when you look at the Earth from space or from the moon? A unified whole. Blue, some green, white, and round. That's it. Just an object, mostly harmless. But yeah, space travel is hard. You have to be fit, it's cramped, it can mess up your bones and make you an insomniac. And maybe the people who experience overview effect are in some way the only people who ever would. I mean, astronauts look forward to this moment for their whole lives. So yes, it might be a little pie in the sky to think that while space travel started out political, it could in some way cure us of politics. I think a little perspective never hurt anyone. I did love the way they wrapped up um, the Krogan story. The whole uh, side plot line with uh, Eve and the way that opened up what the Krogan race are and how they think and how the uh, the the being affected by the genophage has has changed the way they see the world and see their place in it. Um, I just thought that the depth that they gave a race which could quite easily have just been big armored tough guys send them in if you want something squashing. Yeah, I think actually um, it's funny that you bring that up because I think that was an example of what people wanted more, again, bringing it back to the ending, more out of the ending because of how uh, how intricate the, the genophage cure was to uh, consistently through the other two games. And that was actually one of the few arguments that I saw and agreed with. Um, when they were complaining about the ending, 
you know, there was so many tiny details that could have changed in one and two. Like, did you kill Rex? Did you save Morton's data? Did you, did Morton survive? Um, you still had a chance to mess it up within the third game as well. Um, so to kind of play devil's advocate, like I, I, I see that argument for people feeling like their decisions were not important at the end of the game. That's but, because it's a Shades of Grey situation. It exactly. is not a straightforward black and white situation of the ending was bad or the ending was brilliant. Yeah. There, I, I are, think, there are reasons to be disappointed, but there yeah. are also reasons to be absolutely blown away. Yes. And I think a lot of it is as well, your decisions affect the way you see the outcome. I mean, having seen the way that you responded to it, Alex, when you were playing as Renegade and basically being as, uh, you know, brutal and arsish with everybody as you could um arsish that's a word. that should be a word if it's not sorry uncompromising uh with everybody and and you just hated it i couldn't i couldn't it was so contrary grasp. to my nature yeah mm-hmm. you just seemed so resentful of everybody because you were having to behave this way um and I think that kind of brought it home to me that, that that game is so fluid. The whole thing, the whole trilogy is so fluid in terms of your response to it because a lot of it will depend on the choices you make and not just from a game perspective, as in if you make this choice, then this is your outcome. But if you make this choice, this is how you will feel about the choice you make. This is how you will feel about the reaction you get to that choice. And this is how you will feel about the ultimate outcome that is a result of that choice. It's much more multi-layered than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Oh, yeah. There's more of a metagame in this game than mm. people realize. Yeah. Oh, that was uh, something else I kind of was thinking about as well. Um, something I found really kind of fascinating is that this almost especially seeing all of the reactions to everybody and how they talk about this game, just in general, like decisions that you made, it almost feels like a multiverse simulator for everybody involved. You know, we're all given this similar universe, but we can change it in our own right. And therefore we have a multiverse that exists in our world. I don't know. That was just kind of this weird thought that I had. I haven't really fleshed that one out so much. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just something I thought it was interesting. One thing that drove me nuts about that extended Renegade ending is that after all the crass exposition as to how everything was peachy in the galaxy and how everyone was now working together, war was over, evil was punished, we got to enjoy the sweet wind of freedom on our cheek. After all this and the funeral and remembrance for Shepard, everything a person could ever in their wildest dreams hope to accomplish in their life, it cuts to the street and the rubble-crushed corpse of Shepard takes a breath and yes I'm aware it was there before but with these extended endings it gains new meaning do you see what I'm saying here this is aimed at people terrified of their own deaths who want all the glory, all the joy all the fruits of their labours fulfilled a tearful ceremony where everyone says lovely things about them their name etched in the stone of history and after that they also want to be alive to enjoy this adoration and future carnage This is expertly crafted as a colossal, 
blackly humorous, satirical fuck you to the ones who demanded it, and they lapped it up joylessly, sneering that it was adequate and that they might consider deigning to buy future Bioware games, but woe betide them if they pulled a stunt like this again. They have learned nothing. I do not count any of you listeners among them, because you couldn't have gotten this far in the podcast without at least some sense of balance. And an understanding, of course, of symbolism and a need to seek it out. So I'll ask you this. You ever pay attention to that scar on Shepard's forehead? Looks kind of like the beginning of a circle, doesn't it? One thing that actually did eat at me while playing was the sidelining of the Dirty Dozen. This is Anderson, Rex, Miranda, Jacob, Morden, Grunt, Thane, Legion, Samara, Jack, Kasumi, and Zaid. Due to the constraints of the second game's entirely open-ended finale where one or all of your teammates could be slaughtered on the suicide run, the makers of Mass Effect 3 came up against a tough situation. They could include each and every one of them, and they did, but absolutely none of them would be essential to the plot. And this included Anderson, no matter what you chose, at the end of the first game. This showed itself most prominently in your halved character roster. Tali and Garrus had been present for two games, but if they were now dead, there would be nobody to fill their boots. Survivors Ashley or Kaiden showed up again after snubbing you on Horizon during Mass Effect 2, but were hardly fitting substitutes for your favourites from the above list. Edie was a welcome mobile addition, but James bored or annoyed most people. Javik creeped most folks out or was absent entirely. Only Liara, as evidenced by her high party membership statistics, was somebody the developers knew couldn't be dead already and was of interest to us, particularly if we'd romanced her before or enjoyed Shadow Broker, missing her for Mass Effect 2. Unless, of course, it was entirely tactical and you just wanted a really good biotic. Grunt could be swapped out with another Krogan, Morden with another Salarian, Garrus with another Torian, Tali with another Quarian, Legion another Geth. And when the story called for an NPC ally who took part in the plot, it was more meaningful to meet Miranda than her sister, but not essential. This left many situations feeling a little bit cheap to some people, like these relationships you'd forged could be swapped out for a less significant member of the same race, or someone connected with them. There was a lack of variety and range in your team, an enormous Krogan-shaped hole that could be occupied by Rex or failing that grunt. Rex mostly made up for this with some major clout in the political stakes, but could still have had his duties performed by his brother Reeve. Even the Rachni Queen, if you killed her before, is simply replaced. This led many to believe their choices didn't matter at all and that their life was just an enormous strategy board game with pieces that could be effortlessly swapped. We sure as hell didn't necessarily deserve, neither were we owed, a better team, but were within all rights to prefer the glorious cornucopia of fascinating faces, each with a past to explore, and a much-missed loyalty quest of the pinnacle of this series, Mass Effect 2. However, despite their absence in the field, dig around enough and everyone is there to be met up with for war stories and drinks at the bar, in what amounts to one enormous goodbye never better exemplified than in the endless parade of treats on offer in the Citadel DLC, which we will now delve into. Spoilers for that and Leviathan beyond this point. We all recommend that you at least purchase Citadel, and having played it, continue. On reflection, 
Despite the smaller, less fascinating assault team, if you look at that metaphorical strategy board game up close, close enough to see the detail, you'll see how many lives you touched, how many people you've made whole again, how much happiness you've sown, how you made all the difference in the world to them. This is a party you will never want to go home from, one you will revisit time and again. And when you go back to look for your friends, they will be there. Finally, the DLC, Citadel, Leviathan, and Omega. Um, let's, let's do the, the ones which are less... Uh, um, well, let's, let's just do the ones that aren't Citadel first. Let's talk so, about the controversial one first, shall we? Uh, okay. Which is Ashes from Ashes. Okay. Right. Which was the day one DLC, or if you got the special edition? Mm-hmm. Collector's edition. edition. Collector's yeah. edition. You got that. Which, if you're a Mass Effect fan, Mass Effect fan, should I say, kind of annoyed you if you didn't get that edition because it kind of has a really important sort of race, well, a character in it, mm. which obviously is Javik. And I said earlier, I really don't like Javik because he feels a little bit too fanboyish for me in the whole, yeah. oh, we finally get to see what this race is like and what, you know, and it's like, and of course it's going to be nothing like you imagined them to be. And he's an arse. When it comes down to it, he's an utter, utter arse. And I didn't like him at all. See, I liked him. <laughs> I liked the fact I that mean, he he's a warrior like... born and he's very, very cold. But I, lo- I love having his perspective, if not him, him he himself yeah. around. Karendra? That's essentially it. It's the fact that I liked him because he shed so much light on the universe as it was i mean the actual mission mission to get him was pretty crap in my opinion but mm-hmm. it was worth it but i didn't like the fact that it, the details of it got leaked before the game came out yeah it would have been a nice surprise but then again there was all of this sort of i can't believe you're making us buy the n7 edition to get a character that's not fair Well, it kind of wasn't when you think if you're into this law and you go, by the way, you can have this protein. It's only going to cost $10. What about Kasumi? Kasumi's a character. Yeah, but Kasumi, it wasn't, you know, you didn't get Kasumi if you bought the collector's edition. It was just plain DLC and it didn't. That's true. And to be fair, as cool as Kasumi is, and trust me, she gets some freaking great one-liners in this, uh, in the Citadel, um, she wasn't a protein. A lot of Mass Effect's lore and history is built around these. Yeah. So I think doing that is kind of was, and plus, let's face it, when it came to Mass Effect, they bleeding piecemealed a lot of this DLC out. You bought the strategy guide, you got a bit of DLC. You bought a Coke, you got a DLC code. 
yeah, it was EA at their, it's where they love to do their, yep. separate things out to yeah. ramp up. Even, even when you bought the, uh, the Normandy model, the one that I got from Gplex 2012. All oh, right, was there some DLC uh, in that? There was some DLC in that. What was it? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think I ever actually redeemed it. I think it's still in, in its packet, but it, it was something. It's a thong. <laughs> Probably. Just for male shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> you never see it, but you know he's wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, just occasionally he, he just sort of adjusts himself. Um, hang on, there was one other thing I was going to mention regarding DLC and we got dividing it out piecemeal. Fuck. It was right there on the tip of my tongue. No, it's not a thought, it's just a stick insect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was watching The Hobbit earlier today. <laughs> one of, of Lyra's favourite characters is now Radagast the Brown because he's kind to hedgehogs. <laughs> Makes sense in Lyra's world. Yeah, oh, um, hang on. Boy. What, what was I thinking? What was it? Oh, come on. DLC, Prothean, dividing it out, rather good stuff. Microtransactions. Microtransactions, it's <laughs> not fair. Um, oh, I remember, it's not fair. Do, do you remember the, the um, uh, N7 edition was totally sold out and people oh, were sort of paying crazy money for it on eBay because they, you know. Funny thing about that, I only got mine because games, big fallout. Yeah, yeah. I had to uh, chase around a bit for mine, uh, yeah, because of uh, games' big fallout and uh, then Amazon completely screwing up my order. I had to find a independent shop near Leighton Buzzard. Uh, so just business. to just to reiterate on the games' fallout, game uh, uh, fell out with EA and did not stock Mass Effect Three at a crucial time in games' uh, uh, opening history. Financial history. Financial history, that's the one, yeah. Yeah, yeah basically the... So everyone who'd pre-ordered the N7 edition, sorry folks! Yep. I was fuming. But I got there in the end. Yeah. Which is good. I still have the standard edition, I'm quite happy with that. Because at least they made it a reversible cover. Okay, yeah. so Leviathan and Omega, that's what I wanted to ask. Leviathan, I kind of like. I kind of like. Unlike, I don't know for some reason where Javik and the idea of him being a protein annoys the heck out of me. Meeting the actual race that built the Reapers and sort of came up with the idea and seeing why they did it, it's actually quite fascinating to me and quite an interesting. And tell you what, the Reaper form as an organic thing is even more creepy than the damn space things that they are. I, I really like that. I, I found that a really enjoyable. Plus, underwater section. I really like that. That was something different from Mass Effect. And uh, there hadn't been anything quite like that going so far, in, uh, really to the bottom of this ocean world. I, I kind of enjoyed that. Yeah, that's, Le- Leviathan. Leviathan felt necessary. It did. It it does what you want DLC DLC to do. It expanded upon the story and the universe. And it helps to make that end, the Star yeah. Child make more sense, definitely. Once you've yeah. played Leviathan, it, it sort of explains what the Star Child actually is. And Omega? Uh, it's just an excuse to bring Arya to Lock back, which I'm kind of fine with, because mm. I completely keep forgetting that's Carrie Ann Moss. Because she is such a badass. It's, and she's, I think also with uh, Arya, it's because, well, she, she's not that, I forgot the name of the race now. 
Uh, Asari? Asari. She's an Asari, but she's not this spiritual, nice, kind Asari that, you know, you y- used to with Liara. She's a really big badass. She's like a dark elf, I suppose. Yeah, she, she yeah, she's the drow, I guess. But mm, my yeah. God, she's so much fun. And she, she's, I'm hard. I know it. And uh, I'm sorry, having what? fun with it. Oh, wait, she's this. <laughs> she's... Easy, Alex, easy. I was just thinking, you were watching, you were playing it, and suddenly... Sorry, Carrion Moss does nothing for me. But, you know, um, you know, I think because she's such a complete and utter contrast to all the other Asari that you meet, who seem to be really kind and light and fluffy, and then she's uh, just... Except for Samara and Morinth and the uh, other Arda Yakshi. Well, you, you mean, yeah, all right. So I'll give you some more, uh, Morris, but you know when you normally just meet the random Asari characters, they're very yeah. quite light and fluffy. Whereas you, or like the snooty party goers. Yeah, whereas you meet Aria, and she is so totally different that she's quite captivating and quite interesting to to see what it's like. And the fact that someone's had the goal to piss her off, it's like, okay, this is kind of fun. Apart from the final battle thing on that, that's just really annoying. <laughs> Okay, so let's round off with Citadel then. The Citadel is my favourite piece of DLC mm. across any game. The Citadel is what is missing from um, Mass Effect 3. I remember talking to... I think he was talking to you outside the Odeon at Gplex just gone. Yeah. That I said if you were struggling with Mass Effect, get the Citadel DLC because yeah. that will help you get through it. Because the, the Citadel part, DLC part... Not just, well, I'm not talking the storyline, but just the conversations you can have brings back everything that seemed to have been missing that was sort of there in two. That ability to just go and hang out with your crew, with your friends, and get to know them a little bit, a little bit better. Like going with Jack to the, to the combat arena, which is hilariously fun. Uh, or, or, you know, um, uh, the uh, Zaid and going to, 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 trying to win a cuddly toy on the grabber. The grabbing machine, yeah. It's hilariously funny. Or, I've gotta say it. If you haven't seen it, look up the one with, um, Grunt. Oh, it's in the one where it's Grunt versus Rex? No, the one where it's Grunt and his escape from the hospital. Oh, I haven't seen that one. What happens? Oh my god, it's hilarious. And as Fem Shep at the end, it, it, it you kind of realise that I, I, well, this is how I felt as Femshep. Femshep is Grunt's mum. Because it yes. kind of comes across as that. So do you, what, do you have to go to the hospital to pick him up or something? No, he escaped from the hospital in this completely zany, over-the-top way where he gets lowered down on a rope and falls, <laughs> sets a police car on fire, steals the police car, which is on fire, crashes it into the sushi restaurant... And he's telling you all this in front of C-Sec. And I think the last line she says is, I love you, Grunt, but in that sort of motherly way. Yeah. And it's, it's and you tell him off and say, say you're sorry and you're going to pay for it. And it's, it is a wonderful moment if you haven't seen that one. How do you but, initiate that? Because I, I actually, I, I didn't find it. Uh, it's just one of the ones where it go, go meet Grunt and do look yeah. it up. It, it's, if that does not have you laughing, I don't know what will, because it is so funny. If, theoretically speaking, Citadel had been part of the main game, what do you think the general reaction would have been to Mass Effect 3? 
it would have been a lot higher, I think, because there's some the little touches, the little details, and this is yeah. not even I'm not even talking about the missions in there or the party yet. Just that ability to go back and hang with your friends and sure. have that conversation. Oh, speaking of cry, I God, I sound so Mord- like emotional. Morden's uh, no, I had one with the Morden datapad was pretty yeah. good on the heartstrings. I had one with Liara there, which really uh-huh. got me teary as well, where she plays the piano. And it's just this one, it's a romantic scene, but not like you think Hollywood romancing. It's that little two people who love each other type of scene where she just goes, oh, I love this piece of music, and she sits there and plays it for you. Oh. And it's wonderful. It's there's, there's a bit where Edie's talking about doing shopping for everyone uh, to buy them a, a little gift uh, that, that appeals to them personally. And she only goes through a couple of them. And I just start thinking, I could do this for hours. Yes. Just discussing with Edie. What, what would Rex like? And I, the one that steals the bit there was the Joker one. But the yeah. car. <laughs> <laughs> but not just that. It's a good I, idea not to bankrupt him if you're I, spending I, his money on a present. But one of the things I did like was the fact you also get to hang out with uh, Cortez. Yeah. I really like Steve Cortez. Yeah. He's a really wonderful character and he really gets to come into his own a little bit more in this DLC where that, where he takes you on the, uh, he takes you for a flight in the shuttle. I think he turns off the eternal dampeners off or something so you can. That's it. And the window's on. And feel, feel the momentum and the speed and there's all those, you know how we sometimes talk about the fact that this character beats, that's where they were. They were yeah. in these, just these wonderful little scenes. And that just makes everything feel so much more real. That these aren't your team. These aren't a choice of, oh, I'm taking you, you and you. It's, no, that's my friends. They have more to them than just the ability to throw singularity or to do this or to do that. It really builds that, that feeling of cohesiveness between you and the team. And again, makes you feel connected to these characters and to this world. And that's what I think a lot of Mass Effect 3 before this DLC was missing. And when you play it and you see it for what it really is, I think it is the writers going back and having a nostalgic look and saying goodbye. Because yeah. I don't think they wanted to let these characters go as much as we did. And you can see it in the way a lot of it's written. Dare I say it, this is saying goodbye to your family. Yeah. I, I will admit, yeah, that I, I don't want to go back and play Mass Effect 3 because I don't want to feel that sad again. Yeah. Because you, ha- the party, you sort of feel that with some of the stuff that's happening, the people forming, you know, this person forms a friendship with this person, you sort of see the stuff that happens between Ashley and, I forgot his name, uh, James, you know. James, yeah. Uh, where, where they're mucky, they're going on about biotics and physics and being physical and some of that. Well, where James is being a colossal douche. Colossal douche, and then Liara <laughs> just floats him up and he goes, wow, that was cool. And it's this like, kind of tingles. He's probably the only dude bro character that I actually like. Yeah. A lot of people had a big problem with him, but I never, really, aside from the, um, uh, you know, occasionally, well, he wouldn't stop calling me Lola. Apparently he calls you Lola if you're a guy. He calls you Loco, I think. Yeah. Loco ah. guy. Okay, right. Well, then, then, uh, he still wouldn't co- stop calling Femshep Lola. You, you can get him to stop that. I think you, uh, have, you have to snap down on him though. Is it Lolo said like that? Cause isn't that like Lolo. the feminine version of Loka? So, oh, I see. Maybe. Maybe. Well, she is somewhat crazy. I've just realized, and it was just after I mentioned uh, that family, 
You know, in Mass Effect 2, when everyone has issues with their dad or mother or sister or brother yes. or uh, uh, other half or uh, ex-girlfriend or ex-wife. It's usually the father, though. Yeah, there's a lot of daddy issues. Everyone except Shepard. Shepard has no father, no brother, no sister, no mother, no uncles. Uh, yeah, You do have a mother if you choose one of the backstories. Mm. I think does she just, ever does she, just, she or she he ever talk about it? I think she writes. You get a letter from your mother in one of them, but Jesus, it. I've never gotten that. I'm trying to. Def- Maybe I, you have to have the, that certain backstory. I think it's the. Is it the spacer one? Yeah, you have to have, like the yeah. family have, to have survived. Cl- clever. Okay. Well, um, for me at least, that reinforces the notion that this is your family because Shepard has no connections to anyone else. He, uh, she has a father figure. Or he has a father figure in Anderson, but that's about as far as it goes. Everyone else is your extent, and Anderson is ultimately included in this. In fact, technically, Anderson should have bloody well been there. But obviously, he couldn't be. But he is in sort of when you find that, uh, I think it's when you first go to the apartment, you find his autobiography or the interview that he's doing, and you get to actually hear his thoughts. And the Shepherd one's really good. And also good nods to the good books as well. I think there's a nod in there. To the the oh, I've got a name. Is it Kelly Kelly Sanders? Kelly Chambers? No, uh, the the woman that runs the Gris- Grissom Institute. Oh God! Yeah, it's Kelly her. LeBrook. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly different game, I think. Kelly Chambers. But it, it you know there's really good nods there, and so you sort of got that. And if you go there after Morden, obviously has uh, what happens to Morden has happened. Yeah. Um, you also get a data pad from him, and that's quite crushing. Yeah. Although, during the party, I heard my favourite line from Kasumi ever. And trust me, there's some great lines from Kasumi, and in fact, there's great lines from everybody in there. But you find her going through your underwear drawer at one point. Oh, uh-huh. yes! And being femme she goes, thongs? I thought they'd, was it? I thought they'd be camouflaged and they're like pink or something. And she goes, get out of my underwear drawer! And it's... Told you they'd DLC the thong in somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, but it's a wonderfully touching, funny moment, and the characters behave how you think these characters would behave. Kasumi yeah. sort of being that sort of shadowy figure is not used to being in this party situation, so she stays camouflaged, but every so often she pops up and says something funny or does something funny. Grunt being um, the bouncer at the door. Yeah. I'm sorry, I kind of jumped ahead. The, after the missions, you get to throw a party, and it can go... You can sort of take it in different directions. So there's very so you running around like I think it's usually about three to four groups and you can sort of listen in and get involved in their conversations and you saw you sort of see the bonding between your extended family happening between these characters yeah. like where they're, they're trying to get Joker to go to the gun range because he doesn't really shoot or you've got um, like like we said we had James and uh, taking the mick out of the biotics in front of the biotics but sort of not really he kind of is dickish but he's not a mean dick if you know what I mean yeah. Just a bit of a douche, like I said. But once they, once like Liara floats him up, he's like, "Wow, oh, that was awesome!" Sort of, sort of switches opinion and stuff. And I don't want to spoil it because. Well, no, we already have. If anyone's listening, this is all spoiler. Well, it is, so. it isn't because we're talking about what we liked in him. Yeah. But as much as I can say, this is fantastic. This is great about it. These these little interactions, until you experience them for yourself in a personal way. Mm. That is when that DLC really sings to you, and be, and that's why it's it is my favorite piece of DLC ever. Yeah, and then you've got the mission stuff. Wow, it was kind of like a James Bond film, wasn't it? 
I know. Okay. No, I, I'm not going to spoil who the villain is because it's you've got. No, to. I mean, okay, right. If you are listening now, you have to. I'm not going to let people listen to this unless they've already played Citadel. So yeah. literally, there are there's no more spoilers we can spoil on this. Okay, so I'm going yeah. to duck out for a second then because I haven't actually played Citadel. Oh, you haven't played. James, you've been listening to all this spoily, spoily stuff. Why do you mention it? I think it's probably making him want to play it. Yeah, it's making me want to play it, but no, I'll... I'll, I'll Yeah, no, James, you you should go at this stage. I I will duck out for five seconds. Five seconds. Well, really? We'll tell you when it's it's okay. Just mute us. Okay. I'll tell you it's okay. Okay, Okay, go, Neil. So, the villain actually answers one of the things that bugged me about Mass Effect 2. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that bugged me about Mass Effect 2 is it was never really established, are you Shepard? Are you a clone? What are you? Well, this it establishes, you are Shepard, but they also cloned you. So there's now Evil Shepard. <laughs> evil Shepard? Evil Shepard. He's not mini-me. He even <laughs> tried, he, she tried to get rid of my hamster. That is one too far. It actually says something like that when you do yeah. it. It's yeah. great. But what I loved about these missions where it's setting up this mystery and stuff happens... That they do something that makes sense. Everybody comes to help you. And I don't mean the Mass Effect 3 team. Mm. Every character that is playable comes to help you. And that is so awesome. To the point where they say, why are only three of us going? We can all go. So they do. And you've got everybody there backing you up and helping you. Even Cortez is actually a character in there that runs and guns instead of just flying the shuttle. He goes and helps. And it's, it's wonderful. And to the point where you get to the final stage and you can only pick two people and you're just as disappointed as the people that can't go or, cause I want that team. I want all of them. I, I, I still, I think people still would have complained because they would have said it killed the momentum. But if this had been part of the main final game, people would have been going best game ever, and they wouldn't have minded the ending because it would have been like, no, we've got all of it, we've said all of our goodbyes. Yeah, I think that is what the Citadel DLC really is. It's yeah. the chance to say your goodbyes and once again have that emotional connection to these characters. It's yeah. something I go on about a lot. This is why Mass Effect is probably. My favorite franchise, not just this generation, but my favorite Ever. franchise, because you get to have this emotional connection. And it's because a worthy one. It is. And like I said, just some of the moments are either so funny or so touching or just sad. And then there's moments that just make me laugh because I think at one point we got locked in a, in, in this vault and I was stuck in there with Garrison and, and, um, uh, Garrison Rex. Yeah. And Garrus is freaking out. And Rex is pretty calm. And then it's a case of... Uh, Shepard just goes, don't worry. And it's Glyph, are you still there? And Glyph comes piloting along so you get saved. But it's... It's, it's really well directed as well, now that you yes. mentioned That shot, basically, it's just a very, 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 very slow pan out. And then it's like, oh, crisis averted. So there isn't that sort of, like, close-up. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? It's just like, look at the big picture. Of course Shepard's not going to die here. You know he can't. He or she can't. But well, i got to give it to the voice actors, though, because we're not seeing anything. Just hearing this Garrus freak-out moment mm. is is wonderful. It's, it's just, Garrus is freaking out. That never happens. But he is. <laughs> Uh, let me just, uh, I will say before I let Midge back in, the shepherd seems really unfazed about the idea that there is another shepherd walking around. And also the fact that the, the other shepherd falls 
you know, bio, you know, biotic barrier and uh, falling through the window of a skyscraper with that momentum. We've seen Shepard survive worse. So uh, that, that other Shepard could be knocking around. Sequel. <laughs> well, I, I wonder if that's some why Shepard's not phased. She always suspected there was something else because that's how she sort of played. She's well, they play Shepard in that third one is she's always got that suspicion that there's something else. There was always a backup plan. And it also seems to co- corroborate the idea that um, of course you're Shepard, and even if you did die and then they brought you back, they. That's your soul. That is Shepard's soul right there, because the one that's inside this clone Shepard is not your soul. It's a very jealous, angry soul yeah. right there. So I, again, it's a liquid snake. <laughs> Brothers! Sorry. There definitely is a resemblance, wouldn't you say, brother? But, uh, yeah, it says I was the LC. If you haven't played it, do yourself a favor. Get it. I know it's slightly, exp- I know it is expensive, but honestly, it's worth it. Out of all the pieces DLC, yeah. I, I recommend that one the most. That's why I recommended it to you when you said you were struggling with the game. Yeah. Because I thought those story beats would really help pull you back into the game. I should also mention it once again. The music is absolutely fantastic. It is. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. I even love the Clint, uh, Clint Mansell's Leaving Earth, even if it has the annoying... Even with the, <laughs> it's the only piece of music I can actually forgive for having that in it. There's so few pieces of music, at least there were until just a few years ago, which have bois in them. Now it's everywhere. But again, Thank you, dubstep. But I have to admit, because it's something we've talked about before, especially when Matt's around, the music is in these games has just been top-notch, and yeah. it continues through this one. Lily, did you get to play Citadel? I didn't get to play it, but I watched oh, the videos. I know. Okay, I, right. I have been running very low on time. No, that's <laughs> fine. No, no, no. We actually had to sit down and watch a three-and-a-half-hour video over four days. It was agonizingly <laughs> yeah. slow going, um, uh, but um, great fun to watch. Oh, yeah. That surprised um, me, actually, because I thought it would just be like combat, 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 but it's gripping. Oh, yeah. And it, it's it was extremely entertaining um, also, but I think what stuck with me the most, and this might just be my... My own personal attachments is the whole Fane uh, funeral. Oh, that, never got that. Oh yeah, it's so it's it's beautiful, and if you have the relationship with Thane, you get all of the like he he you find out he left you messages and he tells you he loves you, and then it's just oh my, uh, 
Uh, pain. <laughs> and I remember when I told you about reopening wounds on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> I was very attached to Thane, so it was it was. He nice was to- my romance option in the second game, so yeah, he yeah. definitely would have. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you've ever heard. There's there's an extended cut of his prayer when he's dying, uh-huh. and it is even more painful than you could ever imagine. We are gathered here to honor the life of Thane Krios. Thane touched each of our lives in different ways. The Counselor knew him as a hero. The Normandy's crew knew him as a brother-in-arms. And others as a father devoted to his son. Though his life took him to very dark places, Thane cared for the better angels of our nature. He once said that he first felt love for his wife when she stepped in front of an assassin to save someone she didn't even know. And when he knew his death was close, he chose to die doing nearly the same thing. Also for someone he didn't even know. Just as he loved his wife for it, I still love him for it. And I don't think that will ever change. Would anyone else like to speak? What I remember about Thane was his confidence. He told me once about how he remembered everything, even every mistake he made. If I did that, I'd be a nervous wreck. Thane kept it under control. strange, but the last word I'd label Thane with is assassin. And we covered each other in firefights. That makes him a partner. Thane's last stand was important. But let us also remember why Thane left the Normandy. To keep his son away from a life of crime. Deeds such as these do not go unnoticed by the universe. They echo in all who hear them. That is why I am here. Thane took himself seriously, a trait with which I did not always agree. I tried to make him laugh on several occasions. But what I interpreted as a lack of humor was masking a great effort. Thane was turning his life around in a way few organics do. The day Thane came onto the Normandy, all Kelly and I knew about him was that he could probably kill us all with a ballpoint pen. But after you got to know him, there wasn't any reason to be afraid. He let you know where you stood. Kolyat, do you, uh... Uh... When I was little, I thought my father had it all figured out. He said men must be loyal to their friends and dangerous to their enemies. But when he prevented me from, from hurting someone, he had changed. He said enemies and ego are not as important as loved ones. I didn't want to hear it. I was lost. I called him a hypocrite in a thousand different ways. Said that he was going soft. Now, I think maybe he did have it all figured out. 
That's all I can say. If anyone would like to continue, we'll be here. Yeah, so that that's what stuck with me the most. And it was it kinda actually it gives you even more closure on that story than I thought you even had before. Yeah. So it was a nice little touch. Sharon, uh, Citadel. Um, I'm trying to think what I liked best about it, whether there was anything I didn't like about it. I, I think I did comment while we were watching it that it would actually have felt really weird to play it within the context of the game. Because although they do have, um, I mean, the, the first part, the mission part makes sense. Um, where you're sort of under pursuit and everything. Um, but then the whole downtime R&R thing, although there are comments about morale and um, I think it, all the, the way through you get um, uh, lifted spirits war asset or something like that. Um, but it just would have felt a bit wrong to me to be, you know, having a disco while... Reapers were out there. Um, Every second that you're drinking beer, thousands <laughs> of people and aliens and alien yeah. people are dying. See that that just and robots and yeah, hamsters. That would have felt a bit wrong. Um, but as a little sort of epilogue, almost. Even if in your mind you're thinking this all happened before the final push, that's fine. It, it kind of worked for me as a, a little epilogue to just fill in a bit of backstory here and there. And um, uh, there were some really moving little touches, like the, the data pad from Mordin and, um, uh, well, the, the version that we saw, the, the Shepherd uh, romance option had been Miranda. So there's, um, there's quite a sweet little scene with them waking up the next morning and... Um, uh, things like that, but uh, I don't know. There, there did seem to be a little bit of a lack of um, uh, full interaction between the characters, but again, that's possibly because it would be impacted on on how the, your relationships with the crew had been playing out. I mean, the, like the scene where um, Edie tries to get Joker to dance—that's pretty much their only interaction throughout the whole party, which rang a little bit hollow for me. Yeah, I think the the purpose of that DLC was to kind of just give you a little bit more um more of those uh the situations that you had on the Normandy when you get to talk to people and get to know them a little bit better. I think it was it was supposed to be more of that but in a different environment. No, I think I and I do agree with you with the um it, if I was playing that in the middle of playing Mass Effect 3, it would have felt very wrong. <laughs> um cuz the vibe was very different. But it was nice to have the R and R. Well, yeah. I did play it in the middle of the game, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and to be honest, it didn't really bother me. But it was obviously my second playthrough, so it kind of. Well, I think that maybe that made a bit of a difference because I already played the game through once, and and so I knew what what was happening, where it was going. I wasn't as um, immersed in the game this time. That sounds overly negative. I mean, you know, I was, I was. <laughs> I guess I was more aware I was playing a game because I knew what would be coming next, you know. So well, if you uh, if you knew what was going to happen, you you're not quite so edge of your seat. Yeah, what's what's yeah. coming next? So though. I think that was it because it, it didn't 
I didn't have that disconnect. I think I may I may well have done had I um had I played it through for the first time and just suddenly stopped and had a bit of a party. But um it, I mean they they justify it by saying that that you've been out on on the on the front line for for too long and you need you're all in a break. And I think that is probably something that would be needed. I think that they would need to have some kind of a break. However, I think possibly not quite to the to the level not a party of that nature i think maybe you know, a bit of shore leave somewhere um for a day would be more more likely it rather than uh needing a, a weekend off to get rat arsed and sober up but you know uh rat arsed was that a direct quote from anderson it was it was yeah yeah shepherd it's important for you to get rat arsed yeah well you see he's been in london for a long time he's picked up a bit of the lingo you see uh i was born and, yeah. <laughs> and um yeah, I mean that aside though, I I loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I had a massive just the, after you've done the missions themselves were great. I, I enjoyed that whole how the the whole story bit of it, but the real the real meat of it, what really got me, uh, I just grinning like an idiot. Uh, the the whole the party bit, to go around talking to people. It was light hearted. It was just little jokes, in jokes, you know people you know obviously the writers are kind of poking fun at themselves a little bit because they you know they're poking the fun at the way they've these characters have been written mm. it was just fantastic it was so so good well, all-time favorite bits of dlc it's absolutely <laughs> brilliant it wasn't it also uh the game was aware if you um like what party members you favored more and then I, this is what i heard i i, I didn't actually see it in the videos that I saw, but like if you if you took out Garrus all the time, like somebody else in your team would say like, oh, I don't, I go out with you as much, you know, on your missions. Like you always yeah. leave me behind, some stuff like that. Yeah, there was there was some. I think there was a line. I can't remember who it was, but I think it was a line like that from uh, from people. Yeah, because I generally tend to take the same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just James asked, what? how come you can't never invite me out? Because you're really creepy, James. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was, How would uh, you like you know, fast or slow? Head or gut? Because if you call me Lola in public, I'll punch you. Then <laughs> everybody's not be pleasant. <laughs> what it did feel a little bit like to me, actually, um, especially when you you walk into the apartment and it's like, oh my god, that apartment is phenomenal. Oh my god, it, it you was a, died and this is heaven. Yeah, it, it was a bit like a Mass Effect fanfic where somebody had gone right okay what I'm going to write here is Shepard getting to hang out in the most awesome apartment I've ever seen in my life eat sushi which I really like and um, and basically all they missed was the bow chicka bow wow bit but trainers being probed by Edie (laughs) (laughs) oh Oh, god that was just it made me squirm but at the same time crane forward and go "Mm, answer just uh, just let us know how you feel about this one trainer was it it the one where she goes your voice makes me feel like I'm running naked through a field or something that may have been one of them my favourite one was uh, that you said you wanted to pin my voice against the wall and run your teeth over its neck yes that was it (laughs) oh I haven't mentioned this before, but in Citadel, when everyone wakes up in the morning, the difference between who was drinking a lot last night and who was hardly drinking anything is clear and perfectly in line with their characters. So you get James overcompensating by just like being overly pushy with who's having their eggs. Um, and then Tali sitting in the bedroom going, I am going to die. <laughs> 
always have drinks, doesn't she? Yeah, well, she's not the just, first time she got drunk with you. It's like not, it's the, one of the first times she's ever I've seen her obviously relax. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Love that, and also when you go, this was a lovely little bit of a detail. You go into the shower, and Grunt is there. Not like that. He's just sitting there, just yeah, with the shower running on him. And I thought, why is he? Is he just drunk? And it's the tank. He's gone back to a stage when it was all just cool, clear water, and <laughs> he was at peace. And he didn't have to think too much about, am I Krogan enough? Am I, you know, the, the ultimate badass or not? And he's just like, oh, I'm just in here. And it's like, oh, okay, we'll see you later. Lovely little <laughs> detail there. And missed by, I'd imagine, a huge amount of, uh, of, of um, folks who didn't just go to the shower. Yeah. <laughs> My theory is that if this was included in, as the uh, part of the main game, um, and it had always been there from the very beginning, people would be considering this the best game of all time because there's so much choice, and all of that stuff is to do with who you hang out with and who you decide to hang out with. You're just pottering around. You could just not have the party at all. You could just bugger off as soon as the action's finished and say, I just want to keep going with the mission and just keep, you know, just, just push it out. Knowing that that's there and knowing that all your goodbyes are there to say, no one could possibly complain if they got to the end of the game and that was actually included in there. Or, and if they did start complaining, there'd be no grounds to. Yeah, they'd do it anyway. I, I think they would, but they wouldn't. There wouldn't be that same kind of throng because enough people would have experienced it to go, "What the fuck you're talking about? Did you not have the party? No, I just wanted to go straight to the action." Well, there you go then. Hey, everyone. Come over here for a minute. Let's get a photo to remember this. Arrange yourselves on the sofa. An excellent suggestion, Shepard. Great idea. I want a copy. Make way. Make way. Thanks for coming, everyone. Here's to us. Ready, Glyph? Of course. If you could all please direct your attention this way. Okay. Everyone say Normandy. Normandy. And that concludes our Mass Effect podcasts for now. Next time we'll be talking about the broader ramifications of the recurring fan backlash and its increasingly powerful effect on entertainment. Many thanks to all of my guests and featured authors. Angry Joe and Jeremy Jans, both of whom can be found on YouTube. Miracle of Sound, whose music is available at Bandcamp. Harry Partridge of Happy Harry Tunes. Bob Chipman, also known as Movie Bob, who can be found over at The Escapist. Filmcrit Hulk of filmcrithulk.wordpress.com JC Hutchins who can be found at jchutchins.net Holly Dotson who can be found at incorrectdigit.com Lily Skaldafari whose artwork you can see on extra credits Marguerite Kenner who you can hear from on Cast of Wonders Alistair Stewart of alistairstewart.com Sharon Shaw and Matt Ramsey of Do Try This at Home Neil Taylor and James Perkins of Gameburst Jerome McIntosh of Gonzo Planet and Mike Rugnetter and Cornhaber Brown over at the Ideas channel. This has been a truly fantastic experience and I hope everyone got something significant out of it because I absolutely did. And thank you to everyone who's already donated to Gonzo Planet for this year's donation drive. You helped to make this a better ship for us all to fly on. Good night, Shepherd out.
Greetings, Commander. Shepard. I didn't know you could play. Actually, this is the only song I know. Why's that? There was always something more important to do. A ruin to uncover, intel to gather, a commander to save. <laughs> you couldn't sit still long enough. <laughs> Could you? Is there something special about this song? <sighs> On one of my first digs, a storm swept in. We were trapped inside. I was so restless. I wanted to get back to work. One of the other archaeologists, Dr. Olena, had this keyboard. She took it everywhere. She taught me to play this song while we waited. It's a good song. Thank you, Shepard. The person who taught me that song was a friend. I spend so much time chasing down knowledge. Sometimes I forget that there are things you learn by doing nothing. By just spending time with the people you care about. What have you learned from me? I suppose how to get myself into life-threatening situations on a daily basis. I am a good teacher. <laughs> the best. I should probably go. I have reports to look over. Right. But first, why don't you teach me that song? 